Hello and welcome to the first ever Medium Cool, a movie podcast episode. I am your host, Austin Glidden. Today we are brought to you by The Film Yap. Go to thefilmyap.com for all things film. They never shut up about movies, so there's always going to be something for you to learn, to read, and so on. Uh, find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find us at Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can type in Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and find us, as well as at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can even email us if you want to. Comments, questions, concerns, whatever you want at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. We have an awesome first show for you today. Joe Shearer, the co-owner of the Film Yap, who is sponsoring this episode, is uh, here to hang out. Uh, I've actually never talked to Joe before besides uh, via text and email and one phone call when I originally started writing for them several years ago. And so I'm really excited about this. We're going to be focusing on horror, but first, we're going to be talking a little bit about how we got into movies. You're going to learn a little bit about Joe. You're going to learn a little bit about me, your humble host, Austin Glidden. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit more broadly about movies and where those came into our lives, as well as our 11 through 15 on our top 15 favorite horror movies. That'll be at the end. Stick with us. We're so happy you're here. We are so hyped to begin this journey with you. I hope you enjoy Sit back, relax, and, you know, listen. So today we're going to be talking to Joe Shearer from the Film Yap. He is the co-owner. He's here with me. Go ahead and say hello, Joe. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good, good. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, it's fun to uh, get started. And I'm, man, I, I really, you know, I was, I was extremely excited when, when you came to me with this. And and uh, it's it, it's going to be a good time. I, we used to do a podcast way back when, but um, it was very, very low tech and uh, very short and un, you know, kind of kind of unorganized by comparison. So so it'd be fun to kind of do a, a full on thing and, and bring that back for us. Yeah, I, I really hope I can live up to the expectations that not only you have, <laughs> but that I have. Um, but, you know, so far it's it's been uh, really fun. And just so listeners know, uh, Joe, this is the first time you and I have ever seen each other in person. Uh, well, we're not yeah. in person, we're, we're via Skype, but you know what I mean, like uh, that we're talking about this. So this conversation we're about to have about how we got into movies and all of that, I mean, this is an organic conversation. We've never talked about this. Um, so uh, yeah, before uh, we go into that, uh, we're going to be talking about horror movies later, and we're going to be getting to our 11 through 15 on our top 15 favorite horror movies. Um, but before we get there, I think it is important for us to talk about, you know, how we got here. So Joe, mm -hmm. I mean, how did your love for movies begin? Yeah. So, you know, the, the first movie I remember seeing in the theaters, I want to say was, uh, it, it'd either be Peter Pan or ET. <laughs> nice. uh, I, I saw them both, um, at the, the old Lowe's cherry tree, you know, cinema in Indianapolis on the East side of Indianapolis. Um, which does not exist anymore. It has been bulldozed and is, I think is like a, uh, 
LA fitness or something today, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. at least that, that particular site. Um, but yeah, that, you know, uh, return of the Jedi was a big thing, you know, for me, I saw that in the theater, uh, at that same theater. And, um, as I, as I got a little bit older, um, I, I grew up in a, a home where my mom and dad were not together. So coming, um, back to Indianapolis for the summer times, um, my, I had a stepdad who was in the army. And so I would come back here to visit my dad. And one of the main pastimes that, that we would have together is watching movies. So, you know, we would go to the theaters and, you know, we would see during the summer, we'd see just about everything that was coming out. And, uh, and when I was back with my mom, it was kind of a really special treat because, you know, the, we just didn't get out to many, you know, movies. We, they were, they were relatively, you know, be, uh, you know, the, the salary of a, of a military man is not that, that much for, you know, especially when he's enlisted. So, you know, that wasn't in the budget most of the time, but, um, you know, but I remember going to the drive-in as a kid. I did that a whole lot and had, man, a lot of experiences. <laughs> um, I, you know, I saw the original a nightmare on Elm street in the drive-in. Whoa. Um, run. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, our, our mutual friend, Sam Watermeyer, you know, he, that's one of the things I always like to break out to impress him, you know, cause you know, he's a, a big horror fan also. And, um, <laughs> that was one of the first things I remember seeing, um, in a drive-in and it was terrifying to me. You know, I was probably much younger than I should have been watching horror movies, but, um, but I've always loved horror and, and I've always, you know, that, that kind of cultivated for me early. Let me interrupt um, you real quick though. Cause you know, yeah. me growing up, I had a, a similar experience with a certain movie theater. Um, granted, I think some of the movie theaters I grew up with are still there. Fortunately, I guess, but we had a drive-in called sky high movie drive-in or something like that. I don't yeah. know, but sky high is what we called it in Muncie. Um, and I remember uh, we had two screens. You know, you either face this way or you face behind you. And yeah. uh, behind us, like we would always go to the kids one, you know. Um, but behind yeah. us, they'd always have like horror stuff. So I'd always like uh -huh. kind of peek behind. You know, I was like pretty freaked out. I was never mm -hmm. into horror as a kid. I grew up in a really conservative evangelical household, and they were very mm -hmm. not into horror movies. You know what I mean? So it was uh -huh. it was uh, weird. But what was that experience like, though, seeing A Nightmare on Elm Street? I love that movie. Yeah. And uh, so Sam and I, you know, like, I'm jealous, too. You know, I'm feeling this. What was that experience like? Yeah. Oh, I, it was it was terrifying, as, <laughs> as a, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, and and I I never had any real limits uh, and and we will talk about this in in just a little while um, when we're when we're talking about our favorite you know some of our favorite horror movies. Um, but I had I had virtually no limits to what I was able to watch you know in in terms of scary movies, and um, you know most of the time I was out with my you know my mom and my stepdad, and then you know my sister came along. Um, but I was watching Friday the Thirteenth you know as you know as you know let's see in in 1984 when A Nightmare on Elm Street came out I would have been seven. So, you know, that was a first run thing. So I was seven when I saw that at the drive-in. Um, I was watching Friday the 13th by then. Um, you know, whenever, whatever platform it was on, I think it was HBO. <laughs> we didn't have, I don't think even home video was a thing at the time. Um, but I, you know, I, and I remember watching them on television as much as possible. Um, you know, watching those edited versions, but, um, I, I just, I had a love for horror at the very beginning of, you know, my love for you know, cinema to, in general. So, um, it, there was never any kind of, there was never that kind of moment of discovery because it was always right there and available to me. So, um, but, but watching that movie in particular, you know, I, I do remember 
thinking I've never seen anything like this before. You know, it was, you know, even, you know, even those, you know, Halloween and and Friday the 13th were the main kind of horror movies, that style, you know, it's someone holding, uh, you know, an axe or a machete or a knife, you know, and now here's this supernatural element to it. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. And, you know, it was, it was probably kind of a, a falling in love moment, to be honest. It probably kind of cemented that. Um, and I, and I remember things like, um, you know, the, the sequel coming out, I didn't see the sequel in the theater, but I remember it coming out and just being ecstatic at, at the idea of, of another nightmare on Elm street. Uh, and of course that's, you know, today has its own, uh, its own little joys and, and, uh, you know, feelings associated with it. But, um, you know, zombie movies, I remember talking zombie movies, day of the dead, I think came out during that time. And, and I didn't see that, but I remember talking to my friends about it, um, about how we needed to go see it. And we never, you know, we never did, but, um, and, and then the, um, the late night kind of stuff, um, here in, in central Indiana, Sammy Terry was the big guy. Yeah. You know, he was the, yeah, he, you know, he had the, the Saturday night, uh, nightmare theater is what it was called where he would play a, a horror movie. And then of course, uh, if you don't know Sammy Terry, he's, you know, Sammy Terry is a play on cemetery, obviously. And he's just a ghoul. His face is painted green and he wears a, um, like a red cloak and yellow gloves and he just talks in kind of a scary voice. And, uh, and he did it, you know, that forever. Like he, yeah. <laughs> he was like in his nineties or something still yeah. trying to do that. I'm pretty sure he died uh, yeah. quite a while ago, but I mean, uh, yeah. he was like, when I was little, he was already super old, but my dad yeah. remembered him as a kid. You know what I mean? It was like a generational thing. He was cool. Yeah. 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 He, he passed away. I want to say in the early two thousands and his son has actually taken up the mantle. Um, really? and I've, I've actually, yeah, I've actually, um, uh, ran into him at a, um, at a convention here in town and I have a picture with him. So That's yeah. Awesome. Um, and, and he's a, he was a legend in, in the, in the Indianapolis area because, Everybody knew him, you know, my, my uncle sold him a car and, you know, it's, you know, everybody, every family, it seemed like had a story about that, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, well, yeah, we saw him at the grocery store one day and, you know, um, but yeah, he, he was an institution, but, you know, as I'm moving around, I, I got to see things like Elvira, you know, Elvira was, I don't know if, if her show was ever available here, but I lived in North Carolina during that, you know, 84, 85 and, uh, she was on there. So I got to see a little bit of that. And um, USA Saturday Nightmares was another one um, on the USA Network way back when they would have um, the Ray Bradbury, uh, Ray Bradbury Theater, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, you know, basically Twilight Zone esque kind of shows, and then a scary movie. So um, a lot of times, an old Hammer vampire movie or you know some random monster movie. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but that stuff all played into my you know into my love and of, of cinema. Um, and, and like I said, it was kind of the bonding between my my dad and I. So. It gave us some commonality and, and it just, it just grew from there. By the time I was a teenager, it became almost an obsession. I had to see so many movies, you know, and, um, and then, you know, well, we can get in, I guess sooner or later, we'll, we'll get to the, the point where, um, you know, we talk about film criticism becoming a thing in my life. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was actually going to be my question was, you know, at what point did you feel, um, like the, the itch, so to speak, to get into actually the film criticism side, I mean, oh. I think we've we all started at some play at some point um, mm. as just movie lovers, as cinephiles, so to speak. 
Um, But there is a point, you know, I have that same point, and I'll get to that eventually probably, but there is a point where you're like, I need to do more about this. I have armchair critic this whole thing for long enough. I need someone to see my thoughts. When was that uh, breakout moment for you? Yeah. So, yeah. And I always had that. And, and my, you know, my, my friends and family members were always like, oh, you're, you're a movie critic. You know, you're basically a movie critic. I, I remember a girl in high school called me Ebert. Um, and I, I think it was a fat <laughs> joke as much as anything, but you know, oh. we were talking about movies and she was like, oh yeah, you're Ebert. You're Ebert. Um, the, but, see, real quick, no, the dangerous my, thing about that real quick though, is when, uh, <laughs> when you're actually not good at it, but because you know more about movies than anyone else, you're the film critic of the group. You know, like my yeah. brother really doesn't know anything about film, but he's probably at this scene at this point seen more movies than I have because that dude will just sit and watch movies from waking up to go to sleep you know but don't watch anything he'll go to a gas station and buy like a, a 99 cent movie and watch it whereas i'm way more selective you know but he'll right, watch yeah. anything he's seen so yeah. so many but he couldn't be a critic you know like he doesn't understand yeah. movies but he just loves them and i love that about him I like i love his love but like uh it, it, i remember my family used to do that and uh just a quick thing i'll get to later but i used to write for this little movie or this little music site and uh, they had like they would get Blu-rays, you know, and they'd get uh, they'd get these uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, and things. They'd send them to me, and I would I would be the critic because I loved movies. I was the movie guy in my in my circle, right? So what would happen is, you know, I tried to write a review, and it was awful, dude. <laughs> my reviews were so bad there because it was like, I think this movie's so cool. This is why, like. It's just like, it looks cool. You know, I don't know. I just didn't know how to talk about it, but please continue. Like at what point, at what point did you find that in yourself though? Yeah. Well, the, the, the funny thing, well, and the funny thing I do want to say, um, I, you know, you, you know, you were talking about your brother. My dad is very much like that where, um, he, he got, if, if anything, I think he got a little bit, um, territorial once I actually started writing reviews. Uh, and I remember this, this is actually was before that he, um, but this is before I actually started writing reviews, but, um, I remember he, you know, I, I went and saw the Phantom Menace, you know, and, and my dad came to me and was like, you don't even know what that's about. Do you? And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like, you know who the little boy is? And I was like, yes, I know who the little boy is. That's Darth <laughs> Vader. And that's the emperor that's, that's, you know, is, um, that's uh, uh, grooming him to become Darth Vader. And he looked at me like he didn't realize the emperor part. <laughs> <laughs> like he's trying to school you on this one part, but then you end yeah. up doing the reverse school. Yeah. 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 It's like he knew Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, but he didn't, he didn't recognize that that was the emperor. And that was kind of my <laughs> moment where I was like, yeah, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> that's awesome. But, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the exact day. I could if I looked it up, but um, the when it when the actual criticism part started for me was in 2004. Um, I was in college still. I was actually about to graduate, and um, I had I knew I wanted to be involved in writing as a career, and I had seen a um, billboard for Intake Magazine. So Intake Magazine was put out by the Indianapolis Star. Um, and it was it was pretty much brand new. I think it had maybe two or three issues at that point. And I just looked at it and I thought, this is a perfect opportunity for me to get in and, and start writing for somebody. I'm gonna I'm gonna look them up. I looked them up online, 
um, and found the editor and sent him an email. And uh, he started giving me um, just, you know, just random journalism kind of, you know, assignments. I, I did a uh, man on the street thing, um, giving you a, an idea of the time frame was when uh, uh, Saddam Hussein had been captured. So that was my very first piece with them was I had to go interview people and, and ask what their thoughts were on Saddam Hussein being captured. Wow. How awkward was that? That sounds terrible. <laughs> I had to go, right? I had to find, I had to find demographically diverse people. And I also had to have someone who was from the Middle East and, Whoa. and being the, um, you know, forward thinking person I am, I went to my local gas station <laughs> and found <laughs> and found a, a gentleman who who lived in Egypt or had, had lived in Egypt, uh, more, North Mauritania, which is close to Egypt, I guess. Um, and he had very interesting insights actually on it. It was the you know the most the most interesting of all of them. Um, it, you know, of course, around here, most of them was yeah, we're gonna hang him, we're gonna string him up, oh, we're gonna kill you know. Uh. And 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 this guy had had a very complicated, you know, the the, the gas station clerk had a very complicated and thoughtful, you know, response. So I, I actually really enjoyed doing that anyway. So I, you know, I got, I got 50 bucks or something for that. And I did a couple of those. And then I did a couple of really short pieces. And then one day in March, uh, the editor just, he calls me and he goes, what would you think about doing a movie review? And I said, yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and he says, he goes, well, I've been doing them myself and I hate doing them. I have to go to screenings on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and I hate it. And, you know, I just want to go home and instead I got to stay up until 1130 writing this review. So if you want to do one, go ahead. And, and the very first one was the the Lady Killers, the Coen Brothers movie. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, so I wrote that and, you know, I gleefully did it and, and turned it into him. Um I, I actually have it back here behind me in my, my little filing cabinet, but, um, I, you know, it's not something I've read recently. It'd probably be a nightmare, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I waited a week and he didn't say anything to me. And then I emailed him. I said, Hey, you know, if, um, if you want somebody to take those over, I'd be happy to just take them for me every week. And he emailed me back like within an hour and said, yes, please take those. Yeah. So. So from there, I spent the next four and a half years as intake. They they went through a lot of you know they went through some changes. They rebranded a couple of times, but it was four and a half years. I was their weekly film critic. In that time, um, four and a half years, I missed two weeks of of uh, having a review, at least one, sometimes two, uh, you know, depending on the you know the circumstances sure. and the opportunity. And uh, so I missed those two. And I always tell people I had two of my three children in that time frame, and neither of the weeks that I missed were because of my kids being born. <laughs> so <laughs> I, w- I was just randomly sick two weeks yeah, you know, yeah. during those times where I was not able to do it. But, um, but eventually they, um, they rebranded again. They became Metro Mix Indianapolis and Metro Mix is a national brand. And so they were, they were, you know, by contract, required to use reviews from this centralized location in someplace in Pennsylvania or something. So they were essentially wire reviews and they couldn't use mine anymore. And so they, you know, they transitioned me into writing other things for a while. I wrote a B movie column, which was kind of fun. And then I just did random things. Yeah. So, um, that was a lot of fun. And, And of course I was disappointed at that time, but I mean, I was like, that's a good run. So, so after that, um, 
that was ended up being uh, kind of a dark period for the star. You know, they started letting people go. Um, you know, of course, I had a day job during all of this. And um, but I was still going to the screenings, you know, and and that was I mean, and for me, whether I'm writing or not, the main, you know, the the main perk to that, aside from the money, is that I'm getting into these advanced movie screenings for free. They save seats for me. I feel like a total big shot. You know, they, they have press seats reserved and, and they fill these screenings up. So people, you know, people are in line to get in. And we just, you know, as critics, just walk right by them and walk in and go to our, our seats that have, you know, reserved seating, you know, taped to the back <laughs> of the seat. And uh, so, I, you know, I was sitting there and there was another guy who um, who had worked for the star who I knew who I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was friends with him, but, you know, we said hi every once in a while. And um, he told me that he had gotten laid off. The star laid him off. And so he was kind of concerned that the kind of the local criticism scene was going to be going away. And so, you know, we just kind of talked for a minute. I was like, yeah. And he knew that, you know, he knew that I had, uh, you know, been let go from doing the, you know, the reviews for, for the secondary magazine. Yeah. And, you know, and we just got to talking and we were like, we should do a website, you know? And I was like, yeah, we should totally do a website, you know? And I was like, like, this is never happening, you know? Like, we're just, we're just sitting here bullshitting about, you know, nothing. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, I hardly know him. You know, he, we did, um, I, you know, I turned a few of my articles into him, you know, over the last year or so. Um, and I knew who he was just from seeing his articles. His name is Christopher Lloyd. You know, he's got a name like the Back to the Future guy. <laughs> um, yeah. It, you know, so that, like, I was familiar with him. Um, well, you know, then I went and, and visited my cousin and her husband was, you know, that we were sitting there talking about it. And everybody, of course, everybody in my immediate circle was kind of, you know, they were bummed and they thought, you know, oh, your life is destroyed because they thought that being a movie critic was my main job. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we tried to tell them, no, I, I just do that on the side. Um, but they didn't know what I did. So they were just like, oh, yeah, he's a movie critic. And I was like, I mean, that's cool. I'm going to just go with it. So, <laughs> So we were so we were sitting there talking. With, I was talking to my my cousin's husband, and I was like, "Oh, it's funny. I talked to this guy about maybe doing a website." I was like, "But well, I have no idea how to do it." And he's like, "If I can do that, we can have a website up in an hour." And I was like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah. It's nothing. You just get a template and you just fill it out, and you know, it'd be easy for you to post." So you know, I I found his phone number and and got on the phone with him. I was like, "Hey, you know, my cousin can do this. Do you want to give it a shot?" He was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So um, I came up with kind of a logo on the spot, um, just using like a clip art. It, it was so terrible looking. <laughs> <laughs> what and, was? Uh, what did you guys? Uh, just so that all the listeners know, and you might—I don't mean to jump forward sure. a bit—but the other co-owner of the film, yeah, but it's you and Chris. So the guy yeah. you're talking about is is uh, the other co-owner of the film. Yeah, what is? What did you guys end up? calling this site was it the film yet yeah. from the beginning so, or yeah yeah so so about so about a year or two before this he and i had gotten together briefly and we had an idea of starting a podcast that the star was going to keep on their website and essentially you know they had they had all the equipment they had the microphones and the laptops and stuff just sitting in a closet right they were not being used yeah and so I, I don't remember, I think, um, I think the editor 
that I had been working with at the time, she was she brought that idea to me. And and I might be remembering it wrong, but I, I think that's you know Chris might listen to this and then you know and then be like no that's not what happened, but that that's my memory of it. <laughs> so I was like yeah that'd be kind of fun to do we should try it and and so he and I got together and we we did like a twenty minute fifteen minute twenty minute like test podcast um, in the in the star offices, um, and and then they uh, pitched it to the the higher ups. And after a couple of weeks, I, you know, I, we got very abruptly turned down, very summarily just dismissed, <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, we can't, we can't commit these resources to, you know, to that. And we're like, what resources? Like the it's ones that you had in the in, closet, <laughs> right? It's yeah, just junk. Essentially you guys, from your perspective, it's junk in the closet that we're making use of. So, so we were going to call that the film app and, you know, and that was, that was the result of five minutes of brainstorming. Yeah. So, yeah. So we we also decided we then decided to call the the uh, this website the film app. And, you know, and my my idea was yeah, our tagline can be we never shut up about movies. <laughs> it, you know, and I was like, it just sounds it just sounds ridiculous, and it sounds like the kind of thing I'd want to do. So, um, the first the first logo was essentially a film strip. Imagine a film strip kind of turned horizontally, and it was kind of stylized a little bit to where um, the, the, you know, the, the little holes where, you know, the mm-hmm. move the, the film strip are kind of like messy looking and weird looking. So in a way it looks like a weird mouth. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then we just put the film app in generic letters kind of inside there. And it, it sort of looked like it was a cross, you know, it was had kind of a double meaning. It looked like a mouth, you know, so it was like a mouth yapping, but it also was a film strip. So, um, I, in my head, someday we would have transitioned that to a logo that looked something like the Rolling Stones logo, you know, the mouth with mm. the tongue sticking out. Yeah. And, and my idea was let's parody that, but instead of a tongue sticking out, have it be like a film strip coming out of his mouth, out of the mouth. Um, we eventually got someone who volunteered to revamp the site for us and, and he was like, oh, I'll design a good logo for you. And, you know, we went through this whole thing. And he came up with kind of the current look that we have, which is uh, a bullhorn with a mouth on the end of it, you know, where the kind of where the speaker would be. So um, it, which was something that he came up with entirely on his own. And I was like, that's amazing. It's like, I wish we had a, like a stress balls in the shape of our <laughs> logo. Yeah. And this revamp yeah. you're talking about, was this the revamp you guys did in like 2013 or 14 or whatever? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that was about the time frame. Yeah, because yep, I remember it, when I contacted you because I wanted uh, to start writing for you guys in 2014 or, or early 15, something like that. Um, uh, I remember you guys were still going through that. You guys were working on the the uh, the yep. new design. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Yeah, and it was yeah, it and it was at that point was kind of beyond like beyond my wildest dreams as far as that. You know, I was like I had so little knowledge of web design and you know that kind of stuff. I was like. I was, so, uh, you know, just ecstatic that the idea of someone was going to come in and, and do this for us for free, you know, and we wouldn't have to pay him $5,000. He was like, no, I'll just do it for my portfolio. And he, he was one of the stars designers actually, and, um, did it for us, designed the colors and, and it was just perfect, you know, as far as I was concerned. So, 
Um, this makes yeah, me so, feel really good because every time I send you uh, graphics that I make, you're always hyped, and it makes me feel real good. So now, now, <laughs> now I get it. You're just easy, is really what. Right. <laughs> I'm just, please, yeah. It's like it's like maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But you know, I'm going to tell you it's awesome because I can't. You know, if I tried to do it, it would. You know, I can, I can hardly work a meme generator. You know, so. <laughs> So what's yeah, what, so, so so uh basically you know uh this this designer revamps the site um mm-hmm. that's where you and I finally met via um Sam Sam ho- yeah. hooked us up because I had contacted him I wanted to start writing I was in grad school at the time and mm-hmm. I wanted to start writing uh for that and you know where uh, I mean I know at, I think toward the end of 2015 when I stopped writing uh, I don't think well, we really talked until I literally presented this to you. Um, but what happened uh, leading up to now? And sure, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, and I should and I should mention too. It was it was always kind of a goal of ours to help. You know, I, I mentioned that keeping kind of keeping film criticism alive, growing it a little bit in the area, because it it is as it is in most places as a as a profession. It's virtually gone right there's there's maybe a handful of people who make a living at it and everybody else are just bloggers or you know they they have a youtube channel or you know whatever yep um so we wanted to keep that alive so we always pursued younger writers who were coming out people who were just interested in writing and, and loved movies um and that and that led to um, a young man named Austin Luger who wrote for us for a long time. And then he brought us Sam. I know Austin. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, Austin was, was the first one. Um, well, I mean, there were people before him, but he was of, of kind of this line. Um, you know, it was, there was Austin and then, and then Austin brought Sam in and then Sam brought you and, and Evan Dossie who, you know, the, um, and, and then, uh, Nick Rogers, um, joined up with us before that. So the three of them, Nick, Austin and Evan, um, have since broken away and started their own site, you know, which I was like, this is, this is awesome. This is exactly what, you know, we were looking to do. And, uh, we, um, we also started a film critics group called the Indiana film journalists association. So we, you know, we connected with those guys that were left. There was, um, uh, Bob Bloom in Lafayette and, um, Ed Johnson Ott from, um, from Nouveau and uh, it was Richard Probst as the independent critic and just just a bunch of guys in the area, these guys who we knew of who were, uh, you know, who were doing, you know, reviews. And we've, you know, we've grown from I think there were nine of us at the start. And today, I think we're up to 20. Oh, that's and, awesome. And, yeah. And and we're growing all the time. And uh, we're, we're at the point where our standards are, you know, we're trying to tighten up our standards so that, you know, people are truly professional and, you know, um, so, you know, we're, we're trying not to just be a, a group that just lets anybody in, you know, we, and we, but we offer at the same time, we kind of offer loose guidance and we're like, well, if you want to be, uh, you know, if, if you're starting up, you know, your own website or a podcast or a YouTube channel, you know, and then you, you have five reviews in there and then you come to us, we're not going to accept you, you know, it's, we, we want you to kind of be involved in it for a while, um, kind of get a year or so of regular stuff under your belt and, you know you know, figure out how to do this stuff in a professional way. No, and, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, uh, I already forgot. Oh, the standards thing I think is actually important. You know, I, I played music since I was, you know, 12, 15, I was 15 when I played live, but, um, you know, I was starting to play music, uh, you know, I've 
what, 23 years now I've played, you know, whether it would just be, um, you know, just at my computer goofing off, you know, or uh, playing live. And one thing I remember is when I was a teenager, we would go to a theater in Indianapolis called the Emerson Theater. And when we'd go to those shows, like you knew, at least at that time, this was in the late 90s, you knew it was going to be a quality show. And if you wanted to play there, you had to give them a tape and then like a demo or whatever, and then don't call us, we'll call you. Like, that was their thing. Don't bother us. Like, we have a standard. We want good bands here. We want professional acts, and we'll bring you in if we want you. And and what that did is it pushed all of us, everyone in that music scene, and I played, like, hardcore music. I just, like, screamed all the time, you know. Maybe I'll put it in a in the podcast at some point just for fun. But, um, but yeah, it, I, you know, I, I just remember going there and 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 seeing how awesome these bands are and going home being like, we have to shape up. Like we have to get better. Cause my dream was to play the Emerson. Now, years later, I played the Emerson probably once a month and it had just went downhill new management, like three times over, you know, and there were no standards. And so it wasn't as exciting to play anymore. Cause I was in a band where we'd sell that thing out, you know, 600 people or something. It was awesome. Um, but the standard wasn't there anymore, you know, and I, I think you guys have earned a standard at this point, especially if you have enough people that are coming in, you know, to yeah. do that. I think that's great. Um, and, and, you know, to go back real quick, just to give you a little insight into myself, I guess, you know, when you were talking about the, the drive-ins and stuff, I remember those so fondly as well, but I never went to see, uh, like horror movies. Like I said, my parents, you know, I, I grew up in a, a very conservative evangelical household and we didn't watch horror movies. We didn't watch movies with sex in them. If there was something kind of risque on TV, my dad would always like, you know, put his hands <laughs> right. over my eyes, you know, um, and I'd like try to see through his fingers. I remember one time I even went to my dad's house after my parents split up when I was 12. And I remember like I was probably 14. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, I remember basically stealing two VHSs from my dad temporarily. I mean, I was borrowing them, but... It was right. Purple Rain and Roadhouse because I knew they had <laughs> sex scenes in them and I really oh. wanted to watch them, but I, you know, I couldn't. And then I got busted. My dad knew, like when he went to drop me off, he's like, give me the VHSs. And I'm like, fine. You know, like get out of my room. You know, I was just like really upset. Um, but no, I, I, I grew up loving movies, but I mostly watched, you know, Ninja Turtles and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Edward Scissorhands. And Beetlejuice freaked me out, but I thought they were cool. The Batman movie, like those early ones, and anything that was huge, AAA, just like top, you know, the the, the big dogs, the the, the tent poles, so to speak. And I, I I loved stuff like Braveheart and all of that. But my favorite movies were Michael Bay's The Rock and the Fairly Brothers Dumb and Dumber. Those were my <laughs> those were my jams, dude. I thought they yeah. were so awesome. I wouldn't watch foreign movies. I, I saw two. Growing up um, as a teenager, I saw Avalon, which I actually know nothing about. I don't remember it at all. I remember it's like the Matrix. Um, oh. Like you go into like some weird virtual reality or something the characters do. Uh, I need to rewatch it sometimes just for just so yeah. I have a fresh opinion, I guess. Uh, and it was that and uh, The City of Lost Children by Jean-Pierre Genet. I love that movie still. I've watched <laughs> that recently. But, um, uh, but I watched them dubbed. I didn't even watch them... Uh, in the original language with subtitles. And the funny story with that is I didn't get into movies until 2003 when I was 18. And um, my now wife, Amanda, we dated back in high school.
for about four months. And my best friend, he's my oldest friend now. We still talk all the time. And uh, he wanted to bring Amanda and I over to see Jean-Pierre Genet's movie Amélie from 2001. And so, uh, and I love that movie. And so uh, it, it started and subtitles kick in. And I'm like, ugh, no way. And I literally laid my head down on Amanda's lap and went to sleep. She was pissed. Like, yeah. you know? um, but I, I just, I couldn't do so. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the like read a movie thing. I just hated it. Uh, and shortly afterwards, we broke up. And for 14 years until we met and reconnected again and are now married. Um, but 14 for 14 years, I thought we broke up in large part because I didn't watch Amelie. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> but as soon as as soon as we broke up, I was looking for any anything I could to connect with her still, you know. And yeah. so I ended up uh, getting Amelie myself. I think I went to Blockbuster and rented it, and then I brought yeah. it home, threw it on, and I made myself do it. And I, that movie blew my fucking mind. Yeah. Okay, I mean it was so unique. It was like all the voiceovers with the very stylized, like very meticulously stylized uh, camera work. And of course, I couldn't articulate any of this at that time. I didn't know what a director did. I didn't know what producers <laughs> were. I didn't know anything. So I didn't know I'd already seen a movie by this filmmaker. Right. Yeah. But it blew my mind. And instead of pushing me to go talk to my then ex-girlfriend, it ended up just leading me down a path of movies. And my buddy Riley, as I said, he grew up watching movies with his dad. And he was watching, you know, Reservoir Dogs and all that stuff as it was coming out, even though he's yeah. really young. But he grew up and his parents would just let him watch whatever. You know, so, yeah. you know, he uh, he got me into a lot of stuff. And I went to him immediately. I was like, dude, Amelie blew my mind. Like, give me more. Like, wh- I need more. And I remember he was like, dude, watch the French New Wave, man. Like, Godard and Truffaut are cool, man. You know, and he was just like, he was a super nerd, you know. I love them, right. but my point is, so the next movies I go to are Masculine Feminine and Jules and Jim. Like, because yeah. Jules and Jim has a clip in Amelie, you know, where it looks like she eats the bug. And yeah. uh, so, like, I had to see that. And um, I want to say it was around this time. I could be wrong. I might, I'm, it might have been Kurosawa movies or something. But I think Netflix, when it was just discs, came out back then sometime. I don't remember exactly when, but I took advantage of that hard, dude, because there was a lot of stuff I couldn't find anywhere. But yeah. I, I remember uh, I remember seeing the French New Wave stuff, and then someone told me about Kurosawa, and I was like, what's a Kurosawa? And they were like, no, it's a director. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but yeah, show me. And I watched Seven Samurai, and of course I didn't get it. But right. it was cool to me, you know, like, because it was different. I had never seen anything like these movies. And I remember um, for a while, that's how I was rolling, dude. Like, I, I yeah. didn't care, but it was before Kill Bill came out. But I remember I learned about directors because of Tarantino, because I had seen Pulp Fiction and I had seen Reservoir Dogs. And Pulp Fiction was the first movie I saw that made me come back to America and go, yeah whoa, like we make cool movies too. And I started getting into only indie movies, like independent movies, you know, right. <laughs> like screw yeah. all this big, you know, tent pole shit. You know, I was like, I right. want, I want these cool movies. And so, you know, I got into Memento, Donnie Darko, Requiem for a Dream, like all these super dark, but like really cool movies. And, uh, yeah, I remember someone saying, have you seen Jackie Brown? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, you liked Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, right? And I'm like, yeah. 
they're like, well, it's a Tarantino movie. And I'm like, what's a Tarantino? Like, that was always my response, <laughs> you know? And they're right. like, yeah, he's the director. And I learned about directors. And then I learned through him about writers as well, because he was both. And then I learned what an executive producer did. You know, just I, I, you start learning these little things. But what that did was once I learned about directors, it was over. Uh, come 2004, I'm watching filmographies of people. Yeah. I'm reading books on people. Like, I want to know everything about, and you know enough about me through this process for the podcast. I'm texting yeah. you all the time. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I'm sending you like a picture, and then I'm like, here, check this video I just did. You know, I'm like constantly working because I get obsessive. If I start something or if I'm really interested, you and I actually texted, and we don't have to talk about it here, but about wrestling even. When I got back yeah. into pro wrestling, and I'm going on a tangent here, but like, when I got back into it in 2014, I got in hard, dude. I was in deep. I wanted to know every single like wrestler, all the best matches. I wanted to see them. I wanted to know who these people are. And that's just how I am. So with movies, it was that tenfold. And yeah. I really started digging in deep. And it wasn't until, I'm trying to think, I think 2010, I started going to Ball State University. And that's where I met Sam. Uh, not right away, but eventually I met Sam. He was a few years uh, younger than me because I was a non-traditional student. I went back, and um, by that point, I was just watching everything, D like David Lynch or um, Michael Bay. Like I turned into my brother at this point. Now I'm watching everything. I might not like everything, <laughs> but I want to see everything. And when I went to Ball State, they really helped form me in terms of you know how to think. There's a a kind of world-renowned guy there. His name's Wes Gehring, and he does the genres classes and theory and and history classes in film. And I did the film and media studies track. So I was focusing on all that. So I took classes with him every semester and he would just talk and talk about movies. And as soon as the class was over, I would always walk him back to his office and we would talk and talk about movies. And he always loved it. I could tell he would get so hyped because every time he mentioned a movie in class, it was my hand and this guy that sat next to me, who I'm still friends with, I'll probably have him on here because he went to AFI. He's a screenwriter in LA. He's awesome. But like his buddy, my buddy Jake, his name's Jake. Uh, he and I were the we always raised our hand every movie he said. Have you guys seen such and such? It's always us, no matter what it is. You know, we were those guys. You know, yeah. and um, so I always loved walking him back to his office and we'd talk about movies and he would always give me these interesting perspectives that I'd never thought of before. And he, if I had to give anyone credit for forming the critical side of my brain, it was him, Wes Gehring, and Ashley Donnelly, who's another professor there. Those two really helped shape kind of how I see movies. I remember arguments I had with them that now in 2020, I'm on their side of that argument. But at the time, <laughs> we were just like at odds, right? Like we, we could not agree on certain things. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that uh, basically I went through that program. I started the digital storytelling with a focus on, uh, you know, film history is what I was focusing on. And um, yeah, started writing for you guys. I mean, it, it really just blew up at that point. Yeah. And now I pretty much love everything. One, one thing I will say before we kind of take a break so we can talk about horror movies specifically. But one thing I'll say, and I hope every listener kind of can adopt this mentality I don't believe that there is any bad genre, okay? Yeah. I'm not talking about subgenres, but I'm saying right. you can't say I don't like westerns. 
I guarantee I will find a Western you like. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, genre, like, uh, that's something I learned, and that's something I hope that this podcast and also the Film Yap, the website even, that we can help develop people into seeing things they might, they might not. I love broadening, broadening people's horizons, right? And um, so, so as we are talking about horror movies in a moment, or as we tackle other genres, I really hope that people listening, if you see that we have an episode about Westerns and you hate Westerns or romantic comedies and you hate romantic comedies, trust me, romantic comedies were, and horror were my two least favorite genres until mm-hmm. I started writing for you guys, probably. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and But since then, what I did was I intentionally challenged myself, and I found some bad-ass, like some of my very favorite movies that fall into both of those genres. Not simultaneously, but I mean, you right. know, romantic comedies and horror movies. So that is something I really encourage all listeners to kind of adopt, is really try to give, give it a shot. Because every genre has some outlier, some exception that is different mm-hmm. enough that might give be the gateway for you to get into some really, really impressive cinema. So oh, with yeah. that, Joe, I want to take a break so we can keep talking. And sure. uh, we'll be right back. Uh, I, I, uh, we are going to talk about horror movies here mm-hmm. in a moment and how that came into our lives. We touched on it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll touch on uh, how, how <laughs> cinema is today as well. Because I know we wanted to talk a little bit about that. We'll do that as well here on Medium Cool, a movie podcast. Uh, so we're back with Joe Shear from the Film Yap, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit, just a general discussion about horror movies. But before we get there, uh, Joe, you you brought up some interesting things. I, I want to clear clarify something. You brought up some interesting things in some of our texts um, mm-hmm. prior to this, and uh, what I love about having this opportunity to do this podcast is, film was my life from two thousand, the end of two thousand three until about twenty eighteen when I graduated. Um, cause I, I ended up going back to grad school and I did a communications degree. And so once I graduated from that, uh, I moved to Lafayette, I'm here with my wife and I think, it, man, I think it's probably 30 movies I've seen in uh-huh. from each like 2018, 2019, 2020, All the movies that came out that year that I've seen could probably be balled up and do about 30 movies. I am Uh so painfully behind. (laughs) And I'm what I love about this podcast is it has gotten that obsession back in me where I want my finger to be on the pulse. I want to know what's going on. I immediately got on Twitter, which I never use. And I'm like, following every single site that (laughs) that will give me film news and (laughs) you know, things like that. But what can you tell us about like how interesting life during pandemic times for film is because, you know, we see theaters struggling and, and people are nervous to go back and you have movies like Nolan's tenant that was only in theaters. And it's tricky. We had talked about this in text. I just wanted to give you just a a brief moment to maybe fill us in on what's going on. And I know some of the film festivals and stuff we wanted to talk Mm -hmm. about, uh, get just, yeah, give us some info. Yeah. So, so from, you know, for me, 
personally, I have an advantage that most people don't have. Um, you know, I mentioned our critics group and, and we get access to screeners and this year, especially they've been heavy on screening links. So, you know, so I get, I want to preface by saying that, that, you know, I, I've seen 133 movies that came out this year. Um, many that just that came out in 2020, maybe, maybe some were 2019 that, you know, kind of crossed over, but, um, you know, that's, that's high for me. Uh, I, I usually keep track, but, um, but anyway, that's not even really the question you're asking. <laughs> uh, Get with it, but, Joe. No, I, I want to throw the brag in there because um, I'm, I'm kind of proud of it. But um, yeah, the, you know, the theater's reopening. I, I'm kind of the same way. I, I don't feel comfortable or safe going into a, a movie theater where other people are going to be sitting, um, you know, given, you know, the, the plague that's upon us. So um, I've been making pretty liberal use of the drive-in. Um, the past, I actually saw a tenant in the drive-in. Um, I've, I've gone three or four different times this year. The drive-ins have stayed open throughout all of this. So, um, I've at been least twice. Well, at least since yeah, I've been twice as well. I've been twice as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's such a good way to, I mean, the value of it, you know, the, the one I go to is the Tibbs drive-in on the Southeast side of Indianapolis and they have, they have four screens. Each screen plays two movies and, you know, it's, I think it's 11 bucks to get in. So that's, I mean, that's the price of a movie. You sit in your car, you're safe and you're distanced. They have amazing drive-in food. Um, by the way, the, the single greatest piece of, of food that you can buy maybe of anything is drive-in French fries. And, <laughs> you know, it has to come from the drive-in. It has its own little cup and you got to put the right amount of salt on and, you know, ketchup, whatever you, you know, your topping is. But, um, it's, it's arguably the greatest piece of food stuff that you can, that you can consume. I love that you have turned this into an art and you have it down <laughs> to where you have, you know, uncovered the Holy grail of uh, food. Yeah. I love that. Right. <laughs> and I was on a big run, you know, talking about the pandemic times, I was on a big run this summer and I was trying to watch as many as I could. So I was just like, how many movies can I watch? And and I got up to um, my high for the year. I saw sixty three movies in August. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't. Let's see. I don't know if I even paid for any of them technically individually. Um, you maybe lucky one of bastard. Them. <laughs> right. It's just, and now I watched a whole lot of really crappy, you know, horror movies and action movies and stuff. Um, uh, you know, I don't remember specifically August off the top of my head, but. Um, if you um, if you are someone who is interested in keeping track of your movies, Letterboxd is a really terrific place to go. It's it's Facebook for movies, basically. Yeah, yeah. I can't stress yeah. enough how good Letterboxd is. Just for all the listeners, Letterboxd is Letterboxd, B-O-X-D, so there's no E, Letterboxd.com. I'm going to be having – I actually have a Medium Cool, a movie podcast Letterboxd account, and I'm going nice. to be posting – uh, once we complete our top 15 horror movies, I will post those as, you know, Joe's top 15, Austin's top 15, and so on. Uh, and we'll be posting those on our social media. So make sure you check out our social media, Medium Cool Pod at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You'll find us. Um, but that's enough shameless self-promotion there. Uh, <laughs> um, but real quickly, before before we jump into horror, because uh, we are running a little long at this point, because we're really good at talking, yeah. I can tell. Um, right. Uh, you know, we, I used to intern. I interned in 2013 at Heartland Film Festival as a film programmer uh -huh. for the short films. Uh, that was really great. 
and uh, they are kind of an institution here. Same with the, I think the younger, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Indianapolis uh, Film Festival. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. so, how are festivals faring through the pandemic? Yeah, um, I've been a judge now um, on the Indie Film Fest. They, they rebranded to the Indie Film Fest um, a couple of years back. Um, I was in, so I, I was on, on one of the juries for that this year. And um, in Heartland, I know in particular, um, they're actually making use of, of Tibbs Drive-In uh, quite a bit. So they're doing that, and they're doing a, a drive-in style at Connor Prairie, which is, yeah. which is pretty cool, too. I yeah. saw that on Twitter. So that, you know why? Because I added everyone on Twitter. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so check those out. There are some really great films. Um, and actually, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to plug something that, that I've actually been doing just today, um, I, you know, one of the opening, it's not an opening night film. It's a Friday night film called 76 Days. And it's a documentary where they, they are in a hospital in Wuhan, China, as the pandemic is, is starting it's one of those documentaries that will just ruin you, Oof. but it's, you know, in, in this day and age where we have, you know, COVID deniers and, you know, that kind of stuff, it's, it's really terrific to watch, to, you know, really get a sense of, and, and kind of respect what exactly what this is we're dealing with. And I did a, um, I actually did a special thing. I got a permission from the, the organizers at Heartland to screen this with an epidemiologist in Fishers who wow. has been going through some political trouble and she has become kind of a um, a voice of reason in, in the Fishers area, where you know, where which is close to where I live right now. That's my kid's school district, and um, she has been very vocal about how we don't need to be rushing to reopen our schools up and have throwing all our kids together in in you know a single building um, with recycled air. And um, so we had a, a pretty in depth discussion about it um, that actually is on the film yet. Part one is on the film yet right now. Um, and you know, of, of course, both parts will be by the time I think anyone really hears this, but, um, the, the second one as we're, as we're recording is set to drop tomorrow morning at eight 30. So, um, it was really fascinating. She actually caught COVID herself, so she's been through it. Wow. And, um, so she talks a little bit about that. And then she, of course she talks about kind of some of the reasons why we need to take it a little more seriously than we do, or at least some of us do. And, uh, it's, it's pretty fantastic and she's, she's terrific and engaging and, and, of course, extraordinarily smart. Uh, so it's uh, it's I recommend checking it out. And uh, she's she's kind of going to be a little more well known in the area, I think, coming up pretty soon. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and just uh, just speaking personally, everyone, don't forget wear your masks. It's wear just the mask. right thing to do. Uh, yeah. Don't <laughs> um, give people a hard time for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, we are actually recording this uh, on a Tuesday, um, and our I think we're still like seven or eight days before this is actually going to officially drop. So I think the Heartland Film Festival will already be started. But if you're listening to yeah. this, go check out what they have left, please. Um, look yes. for upcoming festivals. Let's keep cinema alive here, not only in Indiana, but if you're listening to this outside of it, because we hope you are, please find yeah. awesome ways to engage with movies in the same way that we are. And um, yeah, we just really appreciate you listening. So I want to quickly uh, transition and just talk briefly about before we get into our 11 through 15 on our top 15 favorite horror movies, I would mm -hmm. like to briefly talk about how horror was introduced into your life. I think you've kind of told us, but can you pinpoint mm -hmm. 
the first time that you experienced horror movies and how that has influenced maybe your criticism of movies in general? Yeah, I yeah, I I couldn't tell you the first one that I remember watching. Um I know that by the time I saw a Nightmare on Elm Street in the at the drive-in, I had seen something. Uh but I mean Friday the, the Friday the 13th movies, maybe part 2 or part 3 were some of my earlier memories and I remember just watching them, you know, through my, you know, through my fingers, you know, my outstretched fingers <laughs> covering my <laughs> yeah. face. Um but I, as long as I can remember, I've loved horror movies and I've always, I, we, we used to watch, um, humanoids from the deep was on HBO and, uh, we used to sneak and watch that at my grandparents' house and they, they had it recorded and we'd always sneak the tape into the VCR and watch it. And, um, <laughs> that, that's, and that, and that actually almost made my list, um, because it, it sh- just shaped so much uh, about what my love of horror is. And it's, it's not, you know, I, I've. I've long talked about horror movies and you know, my, my position's always been that horror movies are designed for kids, for younger people to watch, even though they're, you know, wildly inappropriate and, you know, gruesome and, and full of sex and all of that. They're really childhood lessons. You know, it's, you know, it's don't put your hand on the hot burner or you're going to, you know, get burned. Right. <laughs> or on don't the, walk the out of the fucking cabin when weird shit's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I relate to something you said because you were talking about, um, you know, uh, growing up and, and sneaking tapes in. <clears throat> my dad didn't really care if I watched stuff. He would never give me permission because he knew my mom would right. freak. But mm-hmm. I'd be like, Dad, can it's Friday the thirteenth and, and the neighbor kids wanna watch it and I just wanna watch it. Will you let me? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, Well, I'm talking about Friday the th-. he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, you can stay all night at Johnny's house or whatever, you know. And uh I remember Friday the thirteenth and was something that we used to watch on Friday the thirteenth. It was on USA Network and I would sit and we would lay in bed. Uh, like in a big bed, all of us, and we would just watch these terrifying movies. And, of course, they were TV edits, you know, so nothing crazy. Um, but I remember going over to their house and seeing they were watching, I think it's Child's Play 3? And Chucky uh-huh. used to scare the shit out of me. Like, when I was a kid, <laughs> I had a My Buddy doll. So I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Those things yeah, look yeah. like fucking Chucky, dude. So, I, yeah. I like, it was super, super scary. And I remember walking yeah. in. I, and I'm pretty sure Chucky was actually based on those dolls. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure. sure as well, yeah. yeah. And and t- if you know this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that it's Child's Play 3, and I haven't went back to watch these. But Child's Play 3, where at the beginning, Chucky's, like, crawling, like, across, like, windows and shit, and he ends up putting, like, this guy in uh, an electric chair and, like, murdering him at the beginning. That scared me to death. So what would happen is I'd go to my neighbor's houses across the street, and at night, my mom would call over, like, on the phone and be like, hey, send Austin back home. And so I'd have to go pitch black at night home, so I would run as fast as I possibly could because I was sincerely convinced Chucky was somewhere going. I mean, he was my first nightmare uh-huh. horror thing. And I, yeah, yeah. full transparency, I can't even like watch those movies hardly anymore. <laughs> but like at that time as a kid, man, I, I mean, they were truly terrifying for me. Um, yeah. But I'll just throw this in real quick because I'm, I'm starting to get, I'm starting to, 
get the itch. Like I want to, I want to start talking about these lists because I'm like dying to get in. But know. you know, one one thing uh, with horror movies is I always hated them. Uh, if there was a particularly good one, I was down. Um, but uh, you know, I couldn't just get into horror movies. I remember going to the theater and seeing Lake Placid with. Funny enough, the youth group from my grandpa's church, how or why the youth leaders took us to that, I have no clue, and they very quickly regretted it. However, um, I just even then was just like, that movie sucks. Now, I don't know if it does. I haven't revisited it. But at the time, right. as a little, as a 16-year-old or something, I, whenever, however old I was when that was in theaters, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't like it. And so, you know, it wasn't until I kind of wrote off modern horror and modern romantic comedies when I got into movies because everyone I saw I thought was so bad. Um, And it wasn't until years later, because I'm a huge Kubrick fan, so anybody listening, you just need to know this now. I have a tattoo that is a whole collage of Kubrick movies. I am dedicated for life. Stanley Kubrick's my favorite filmmaker. That's an easy one for me. And I remember seeing a movie like The Shining, um, or uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, or Halloween, you know, or just these kind of classics. And those, I was Halloween less so at the time. I love that movie now, but at the time, less so. But some of these movies kind of broke the barrier for me and got me in. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think once we get into the list, you'll kind of see where I started because I think my 11 through 15, a lot of this is stuff that broke me into horror that actually helped me get there. So we're going to take one more break real quick. And as soon as we come back, we're going to talk about our 11 through 15 on our top 15 favorite horror movies. First, a little medium cool movie lesson about body horror. Here it goes. Horror. A genre made up of so many moving parts is difficult to sum up with one comprehensive word or statement other than maybe scary. But what does that even mean? There are many subgenres that create an overarching umbrella of horror, and I want to break down one I think is really special. Body horror. In Megan Navarro's article published by Bloody Disgusting, she wrote about body horror, saying, quote, Body horror is a reminder that sometimes death is better. As we watch in disgust while a victim is trapped inside their own bodies as it degenerates and mutates into something unfamiliar and unidentified. End quote. Generally, body horror demonstrates a graphic destruction, transformation, and or mutilation of the physical human body. You see this in films like Cronenberg's The Fly from 1984, Kevin Smith's Tusk, The Human Centipede from 2009, and Stuart Gordon's consecutive releases Reanimator in 1985 and From Beyond in 86, to name a few. But when did this subgenre really take off? Body horror, in film, really developed in the 1950s, with movies like the original versions of The Fly and The Blob, both from 1958. But by the end of the 1960s, we see the end of the motion picture production code created by Will H. Hayes in 1934. He was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Now this was the form of censorship placed on studios and filmmakers and was intended to hold films to a certain moral and ethical standard based heavily on conservative Christian values, so not to lower, quote, the moral standards of those who see it, end quote, referring mostly to women, children, lower class, and those of, quote, susceptible, end quote, minds. After July 1st, 1934, movies had to obtain certification of approval before being released. 
and for more than 30 years, virtually all motion pictures produced in the United States adhered to the code. Some of the rules were, one, crime and immorality could never be portrayed in a positive light. Two, films could only present, quote, correct standards of life, end quote, based on the thinking of the times. Three, nudity and overt portrayals and references to sexual behavior, even between consulting adults, could not be shown. Four, religion could never be depicted in a mocking manner. My God, can you imagine if they saw The Exorcist? Anyways, five, topics considered, quote, perverse, end quote, could not be discussed or depicted in any way. So what sucks about this is homosexuals were included under the prescription of sex perversion. And pardon my French, but that's fucked up. There are many more standards, such as you couldn't have a killer shoot another character on the same screen. They had to shoot, the film cuts and edit, and then you see the other person get shot. This is in large part why horror films were so tame in comparison to today's standards. But please believe me when I say that does not equal boring, but I digress. We begin to find a new breed of body horror in the postcode 60s. Navarro goes on to say, the most prominent entry in body horror in the 60s was, surprisingly, Rosemary's Baby. Roman Polanski's classic horror film explored the fears of motherhood, and poor Rosemary Woodhouse, played by Mia Farrow, never truly had autonomy over her own body. Her own husband drugged her and offered her to, up to Satan, and the resulting pregnancy was controlled at every turn by surrounding witches, and even when the Antichrist baby in her womb was making her very ill." End quote. Rosemary's baby is less an outward transformation as it is the mutation of the demon spawn inside her. It was a very, very influential and just a, it's a really cool movie. Anyways, the 70s and 80s really started showcasing body horror in large part thanks to David Cronenberg, the filmmaker many people consider the master of the genre as we know it. The dawn of the postmodern body horror film had come, and filmmakers were making wild movies like Cronenberg's Rabid, Scanners, Videodrome, and Dead Ringers, David Lynch's Eraserhead, William Sachs' The Incredible Melting Man, Ken Russell's Altered States, and elements can be found in Clive Barker's Hellraiser, and Brian Usna's Society from 1989. I hope I got that name right. Anyways, but these are just a few of the notable titles. Cronenberg's remake of The Fly from 1984 is an exemplar of the genre, as we watch Seth Brundle gradually deteriorate after his botched experiment, grasping desperately to the remaining strands of humanity within. In the 90s, we had films like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive and Philip Brophy's Body Melt. But the 90s is largely known as a lackluster period for body horror in American cinema, though gems can certainly be found. In the 2000s, we get fun times with Eli Roth's Cabin Fever, where we are offered the opportunity to become traumatized by watching people get infected with a flesh-eating virus and barf everywhere, while a kid with a mullet does karate and screams, PANCAKES! James Gunn's Slither from 2006 and Tom Six's The Human Centipede from 2009 were much talked about at the time. Body horror had a bit of a resurgence after this, with some films that I'll put on a list on Letterboxd and I'll share it on our social media. If you want more body horror, that list will give it to you. But until then, sleep well and dream sweet dreams of Jeff Goldblum turning into a fly. Up next, 
11 through 15 on our top 15 favorite horror movies. Okay, Good. so uh, we're going to talk about our 11 through 15 uh, picks for our top 15 favorite horror movies. And, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish we would have flipped for it or something. I don't exactly <laughs> know who should start, but since you are uh, my guest, technically, I'm going to go ahead and let you start. We're going to start with our number 15 and work our way uh-huh. back. Joe, what sure. do you have for us? Number 15. Yeah, so... So uh, and I do I do want to kind of preface the my selection criteria. Yeah, we need criteria. Sorry, I totally spaced yeah. that. Definitely go for it. Yeah. So so some of these you know further up the list will be movies that I kind of I genuinely consider terrifying, um, or you know and or classics. But this fifteen through eleven is populated a lot with movies that I just love that are horror movies. Uh, my favorite now my favorite movie of all time is Jaws. And I actually have arguments with people about that because I think Jaws is much more than just a horror movie. Um, so Jaws is not on my list, being my favorite film of all time. Um, although obviously it's very scary and it has elements of horror, um, I, I decided not to include it. But these first five here—is that, that five or four? One, two, four, five—are um, movies that aren't necessarily—they're horror movies, but they're not. You know, they're they're varying degrees of bad in a lot of in a lot of ways, but they're <laughs> you know, but but they've been important to me, and they can and they continue to be some of my favorites. And this one um, that I chose for fifteen is maybe the most infamous. <laughs> uh, I'm so it's, excited. <laughs> it's it's a film from 1979, directed by Joe D'Amato. It's called Beyond the Darkness. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen Beyond the Darkness? I have not seen it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So, yep. So so I saw this movie. I rented this movie when I was 10 years old and watched it. And, um, uh, you know, we, we mentioned um, some of our friends. Um, you know, I mentioned my, my Midwest Film Journal friends. Uh, we every year have a a couple – we have a couple of times we get together and just watch movies. And, and we – the idea is that um, Nick and I are a little bit older than Evan and Sam – and the idea originally was we would show them some some of these movies that we loved. And Evan does um, a thing called No Sleep October for he used to do for the film app, and now he does for his you know for Midwest Film Journal, um, where he was much like you. He wasn't much of a horror fan as a kid, but he so he's trying to catch up. So this was one of my first selections. Um, it was a film <laughs> I watched like I said when I was ten. I watched it once, and I swore I would never watch it again. And I didn't until I want to say two years ago. Uh, it's it's a film about a, this random rich guy. So it's Italian, number one. Mm-hmm. It's one of those Italian horror movies, and Italian people are messed up. <laughs> I tell you, <laughs> this particular film is about a guy who um, he's a young man, has a girlfriend, and he has a live-in kind of a weird. She's kind of a maid. She's kind of like a mom figure to him. And, um, so, but this, this woman, this mom figure is also in love with him. So she puts a curse on his girlfriend that causes her to die. 
So when, but when she dies, the man freaks out. He takes her body and he, um, he basically prepares her for burial. He embalms her. He removes, there's a sequence where he is essentially removing all of her insides and, you know, and embalming her and all that stuff. And then he, um, leaves her in his bed. And then through much of the rest of the movie, he picks up random women to have sex with them. And as he's doing that, he kind of uncovers her on the other end of the bed so that, you know, she can participate in whatever way she can. Wow. And then of course, invariably the women discover this and he then has to kill them. It's, it's a bizarre movie. There's a scene where this, this mother figure lady breastfeeds him. That <laughs> is just the nuttiest thing. It's, it's it's just bizarre. There's so many there's so many things in this movie. I I just can't tell you. There's just these long drawn out sequences of gore and <laughs> and just ridiculousness that don't make narrative sense at all. Uh, for for uh, as for as ridiculous as this clearly sounds, I'm kind of sold on it. I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it's there. You know, there's a scene involving some pliers and and fingernails. Um, there are neck wounds and just. Uh, there's there's a there's a uh, bathtub full of acid that becomes involved at one point. Of course, there is. Yeah, it's it is um, it's something to behold. Uh, it's something you if if you're a, a real fan of horror films, um, and not just into the scare part of it, um, it it's one to watch for sure. Uh, and like I said, it, it's it's infamous. When I watched it, it was titled "Buried Alive," mm-hmm. but. There, I don't believe there's any burying happening at all in the film. <laughs> so the Beyond the Darkness title is is uh, a, a little more generic, but but probably fits a little better. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, I, I'll have to check that out for sure. Um, yeah, Joe's number fifteen, Beyond yeah. the Darkness. On the wow, darkness. you you have impressed me. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna give you my criteria real quick. I'll I'll, um, I'll say that uh, I I only set a few rules. I wanted to create a list where it not, was not only populated with my favorites, of course, um, but also contained uh, a variety. So it's not quite a desert island list per se, um, but I kind of treated it that way a little bit. Um, and one of my restrictions was one film per filmmaker. So, um, you know, uh, there might be a space where it's like, well, I could put three different movies by this person in this spot, or it could take three slots because I love these so much, but I chose one. So that was one restriction that I had. Um, But another thing I just want to clarify, and this goes for you as well, and I think you did a a fine job explaining this as well, but my picks are not necessarily what I would consider the overall best films, nor are they the best representations of the genre, okay? (laughs) These are just my personal favorites, you know? So um, with that said, my number 15 is... Peter Jackson's 1992 movie Brain Dead, or as we call it here, Dead Alive. Um, Dead Alive was my favorite horror movie of all time for a long time because I love movies that are funny, um, but that the I feel like it's intentional and they're in on it and it feels like organic in some strange way. And that will become more present with future uh, titles on this list. But uh, you know, I've, I've always known, uh, I don't know. There's just something so special about it's what I'm trying to get at. And 
you know, I, I think some people may not consider it a horror movie because it definitely fits in that slapstick comedy uh, aspect as well. But for me, I think, um, you know, it qualifies as a splatter film, basically, just for its gore, violence, and subject matter in and of itself. And Basically, Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson's third feature follows Lionel Cosgrove, a tall, lanky mama's boy who has dreams of becoming his own man. And uh, when a Sumatran rat monkey bites Lionel's mother, she gradually transforms into a zombie and begins killing and transforming the entire town while Lionel races to keep things under control. That was my little synopsis. And it's a simple synopsis because there's not much more to say. Uh, that's right. all it is. Lionel's trying to keep things under control, and shit's getting gross. Uh, you've seen this, right, Joe? Uh, you know, I have never seen that. I've, I've heard of it, but I, I never actually watched that one. Okay, uh, I, I'm disappointed, but I, you I, probably were it too. It's fine. Uh-huh. Um, but it had a budget of $3 million, only made 240000 back. I mean, this was a yeah. flop. But after yeah. Lord of the Rings came out and people started looking into Peter Jackson's history, which is a mm-hmm. talk about Italians being fucked up. Peter Jackson's fucked up, dude. Like <laughs> if you watch his pre Lord of the Rings stuff. Now, the Fright, the Frighteners is cool. And um, um, Heavenly Creatures is a, a yes. dark and really beautiful movie. But prior Absolutely. to that, you have Dead Alive. You have Meet the Feebles, which is like mm-hmm. a weird, like fucked up Jim Henson nightmare. Because uh, it's all, it's just like all of these Muppets basically doing super adult things and it's super violent and it's ridiculous. And then a bad taste before that, of course. So, um, yeah. but the the thing about this movie is, um, you know, it became a huge cult classic after uh, Lord of the Rings was released and people started going back. Another thing that is really, really notable though, if you're not into gore, do not watch this because it is gory as hell. There is yeah. a scene where uh, Lionel picks up, this is the most famous one, you've probably seen this one, Where uh, and you can YouTube it, listeners, go check this out. He lifts a lawnmower up horizontally where the mower blade is facing out, and he just starts literally mowing through zombies, and they all have their (laughs) hands out, so it's just chopping (laughs) appendages, you know, and uh, by the end, he's slipping on blood because there's so much blood on the ground and, like, guts, (laughs) Um, I mean, someone gets their rib cage ripped out of their body while they're alive. You know, I mean, it's it's very comical. There's nothing scary about this movie, but it is yeah. the goriest film I've probably ever seen. And you have those like I call them gore horror movies. I just learned that they're French extremity or uh-huh. extremity horror. I'd have to look up. There's an actual title I just learned, but I call them French gore horror movies like High uh-huh. Tension, Martyrs, like these really extreme yes. Uh, horror movies inside would be another one and 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 uh this isn't gory like that because those are difficult to watch in 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 many circles but uh i don't think those movies are more gory than dead alive i think dead alive is probably uh, there's like a tagline on the blu-ray it says the goriest fright film ever made uh, and it's a quote by some review, and I, I think it's accurate. I mean, I've seen a lot of horror movies now, and I'm sure you've seen even more, um, yeah. and I've never seen one. So I, I strongly recommend uh, Dead Alive. Again, the the original New Zealand name is Brain Dead, but I believe it's Dead Alive here in the States. Go check out Dead Alive. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Joe, Absolutely. number 14. Yeah. Go for it. Number 14. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm staying in Italy, um, but I'm I'm – Switching subgenres a little bit. Um, this is a movie that, um, you know, speaking of drive-ins, 
I saw that this film was to be played at a drive-in um, when you know back in that era in, in the early '80s, and the the art, you know, back in the day, you know, we would look at newspapers and there would be ads for these, you know, for these films, and I saw this ad and it absolutely transfixed me, and it, you know, it claimed that it was this movie was banned in 15 countries or something. And um, the the film is from 1981, uh, directed by Andrea Bianchi. It's called Burial Ground. Okay. And for years and years, this movie was kind of a legend for me. There would, back in the day, you know, you had you had Blockbuster, which was very mainstream, right? It was a chain. But then your kind of your mom and pop video stores would sometimes have copies of movies that blockbuster wouldn't carry you know blockbuster you know in in the especially like in the 90s kind of famously stopped carrying films that were unrated yeah and and so you know so if you got your you know your average shannon tweed or julie strain kind of you know uh, erotic thriller kind of movie you you're not renting them at blockbuster because you know you're getting clipped scenes right yep (laughs) so so the same goes for the for horror movies and so you had to find this elsewhere so all growing up, I never got to see this film. And finally in, oh, when was it? It would have had to have been around 1997. Again, this movie came out in 81. Um, I would have first seen it probably around 84 or 85. I would have first seen the, the, uh, that, those ads, those newspaper ads for it. Um, so finally around 1997, 1998, I found it at, um, in uh, a Best Buy. Actually, I found a copy of it. And I very quickly snatched it and paid the 10 or $15, whatever it was to take it home and watch it. And it, so it's a zombie movie. It is very fucked up in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, so a, just a couple of things that this movie established. Number one is that zombies came from kind of this mad scientist type who was doing experiments in a cave and he's re- trying to reanimate the dead, and he succeeds, and of course they immediately attack him. And so he has this scene where the the opening scene of the movie where they're descending on him, about to kill him, and and he's saying, I mean, this is a line in the in the film, "No, I'm your friend," <laughs> and then they <laughs> proceed to kill him. The the other thing about this movie is apparently in Italy people just bury people in random spots. Because, you know, there's the, these, you know, there's it's essentially this, this group of people who are in a, um, in like this mansion somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it's, it's a group of couples and, you know, people who, you know, and they, they of course split off and, um, you know, man and woman decide that, you know, they're getting a little, they're, they're feeling a little amorous and, and, uh, start making out and, and a zombie just kind of randomly pops out of the ground from just, <laughs> you know, some unmarked grave somewhere, apparently on the grounds of this property. And, uh, the, the highlight of this film though, uh, again, it's, it's gory. Um, some of the effects are really good, you know, for their time, but today don't look great. You know, some, some of the, some of the zombies are very obviously wearing masks and things, but <laughs> yeah. But the, but the the style, the kind of the grittiness of it, kind of the the cheapness of it, in some ways enhances, you know, the kind of the realism of it too. I think there's a charm um, to it. I think yeah, it's exactly charming. Right. Yeah, 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 and and it brings this level of horror. But 
but the the by far the most disturbing subplot in this film revolves around a woman and her son. So her son, the son is played by an adult little person. He's very obviously an adult. He he would be the oldest 12-year-old in the history of of <laughs> cinema, you know. He's but he speaks in a very soft voice. He's they you know, of course they never say his age, but he's supposed to be a child. But like I said, very obviously is not. Yeah. And he really loves his mom. Like he loves her a lot. <laughs> like a whole lot. And uh so as the zombies start, you know, going around and they're running around this essentially a castle, there's a scene where they stop and they're sitting there and he just talks about how much he loves his mom and he gives her a kiss. <laughs> And then he gives her another kiss and then he gives her a longer kiss and you're like, what the hell is going on? Oh my God. Well, then his hand goes inside her shirt and then she stops him. <laughs> Only then. <laughs> Only the Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. Way, way too long. I, I can't tell you kind of the payoff to that story because it's, it's kind of the, the climax of the film, but it does not disappoint <laughs> by any means. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a highlight of the movie. But um, yeah, it's it's got some some excellent gore. And again, without saying too much about that particular scene, the, the payoff to that is is the highlight of the film. And it's so bizarre and just so off the wall whacked out that you're just like, I I don't even know where someone number one, where someone comes up with that to put it into a script and then where actors come in to actually act that out. It is one of the kind of the great bizarre film experiences of my life. And, and so that's why I put that again at 14, not scary in the traditional sense. You know, you're not being frightened by jump scares and, and, you know, loud music cues, but it's deeply disturbing on, on several different levels. It sure sounds like it. Um, <laughs> and just so we all remember that was Joe's number four. No, yes. um, I, I haven't seen that. Um, I am kind of interested. <laughs> like that sounds Maybe pretty, I'll let you borrow it sometime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It sounds pretty wild for sure. Um, wow. This is a wild list so far. All right. Um, my number 14 is, uh, I'm just going to go for it. Stuart Gordon's 1986 From Beyond. Mm -hmm. um, nice. It was Stuart Gordon's second Lovecraft adaptation. Um, and From Beyond is an 80s sci-fi body horror movie that follows a group of scientists who have developed The Resonator, a machine which allows whoever is within range to see beyond our dimensional reality. But when the experiment succeeds, they are immediately attacked by terrible interdimensional life forms. That is the kind of the weakest synopsis you could say because all the best parts of that movie are not in it. But I also yes. don't want to spoil, for example, Jeffrey Combs' character having you know a pituitary gland that pops out like an anglerfish. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like, dude, that. So I, I want I want to uh, concede to something. I think Reanimator is a better movie. Okay. Uh -huh. Um. I think it's far more cohesive. I think it's, you know, I just think it's, I think that's, I actually think that's just a good horror movie. Uh, Ebert would call it like one of the best like trash 
horror movies, you know, and he means that endearingly. Um, but for me, I, I think it's just cool. Like, I think it's a really cool kind of lower budget, um, horror movie, but, but from beyond in its kind of discursiveness and in its, in its, uh, kind of convolutedness is so weird and bizarre Um, and I don't want to spoil anything, you know? Uh, so its budget was four and a half million dollars. It only made about 1.2 back in the box office. That's worldwide. And, um, uh, what I love also is, uh, Ebert's original 86 review. Um, it opens with a pretty lengthy paragraph about him describing, or at least just kind of like talking randomly about the goo. Like there's Uh just this gooey, like purplish pink slime Yes. Throughout the entire movie, everything is in this like weird Lovecraftian dimension of like purpley pinkness. Um, And everything is just dripping in goo when it has to do with the other dimension. Uh, The body horror aspect is um, Jeffrey Combs, who was the original, uh, original. He was the protagonist in reanimator as well for those listening if you haven't seen from beyond uh jeffrey combs comes in here i actually don't have written down what his name is in the movie but doesn't matter the point is his um his uh i don't know his superior or whatever his the professor that mentors him or whatever and from beyond uh starts with the resonator and is what gets him into it but through this interdimensional stuff he starts to transform and he starts the practical effects Stuart Gordon does both in reanimator and from beyond, but I'm going to go with from beyond here is so awesome. And I am a sucker for practical effects, nothing against CG, but uh, on, on TCM, I remember seeing this little vignette between movies uh, on Turner classic movies and, and uh, somebody, I don't remember who it was. It kills me. I can't find the clip, but they said the best special effects are the ones you never see. And th- that's those like with CG specifically, that's that's my kind of uh, that I, I apply that to CG, especially my favorite ones are the ones that don't even stand out to you. You know, like they just it allows you to immerse in this world. And I think that's uh, far too rare these days. And you get back into these practical effects. And though, you know, they aren't necessarily realistic per se, they look fucking good and they're gross like they're super weird and super disgusting and um you know in reanimator you have a headless man about to perform cunnilingus on a on a helpless maiden you know uh, and then from beyond you get uh people getting horny because their pituitary glands are being activated via the resonator uh it's just a, a very it's you know it gets campy at times i'll end with this and i'm not i'm going to butcher this quote <clears throat> excuse me but jeffrey combs character gets you know um apprehended by law enforcement and is taken in. He's questioned. And just to give you an idea, the best part about Stuart Gordon horror movies is it's clear that Gordon's in on it. He gets that this is funny, but he makes all of his actors, or they choose to, they collaborate, they all play it straight. Like, everyone's super serious. Everyone is... is uh, it's That's part of what makes it so funny. So there's a point where he's apprehended, and Jeffrey Combs is uh, being asked questions, and they're like, you know, what's going on? Like, who who... Who are you talking about? And he's like, they just took his head. Like a gingerbread man. You know, and it's like this like really awesome line. I just, I butcher, I mean, he says it much more, not believable, but just more, with more conviction, you know. I, I'm like out of some weird Vincent Price movie. But the point is, you know, uh, I think From Beyond is a really special movie from the 80s. Again, if you haven't seen Reanimator, I'm going to cheat and kind of throw that into 
<laughs> just because I think it's a better movie. But From Beyond is way weirder. Um, yes, it's way more kind of all over the place. It's less cohesive, but I think it has some really, really special moments. And that's my number 14, From Beyond. Joe, number 13, go for it. Yeah, so my number 13, I'm I'm going to go, you know, you just talked about your cheat. I'm going to go, I'm really celebrating the franchise, but I'm also picking probably the least popular of this particular franchise. And it is legitimately my favorite. <laughs> yes. It's, it's legitimately my favorite Friday, the 13th film. And that's part five, a new beginning. Okay. And this is now I'm going to have to, you know, uh, I'm because of the infamy of this movie. This is the fake Jason movie. This is the one where the killer is not Jason, but is some random dude who, um, finds who's it, it's through some, contrivance i'm not going to bother even telling you what it is um becomes becomes jason in the sense that he's impersonating him and murdering and murdering teenagers it takes place at so it's the second of the tommy jarvis trilogy uh you know part the the final chapter of friday the 13th the final chapter is arguably the best friday the 13th film um but part five is the absolute goofiest and i love it so much it, it features my my favorite characters, my two favorite characters probably of the uh, the series, which is um, Ethel and Junior, the the rednecks that live next to this, um, as they call it, nut house that that these kind of wayward teens are are being shuttled off to, including Tommy, who is you know disturbed by his encounter with Jason in the previous film, <laughs> and he's you know he's he's having hallucinations that he sees Jason, and then of course this this goofy dude decides to impersonate him but ethel is the complete embodiment of of redneckery and goofiness um there's there's a couple of just completely nutty sex scenes um some pretty creative deaths and it it's kind of the it's kind of the moment where um friday the 13th goes slapstick a little bit gotcha um yeah and and it start it kind of continues that trend of we're going to just do whatever the hell we want to end the film. And then the next film will just completely ignore it because it doesn't, because who cares? So it, it's just, it's so off the wall and nutty fake Jason. His mask is slightly different. Um, he kills one. He kills one of these young leather biker toughs that, um, that we randomly encounter with a road flare to the mouth. And <laughs> it's just, it's just so silly and goofy that I, I have to love it. Um, again, I'm celebrating all of the Friday the 13th franchise because I, you know, I love every one of those movies. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to call that one out as my favorite, even though it's, you know, for most people, it's the worst in the franchise. And I can't really blame them, honestly. And do you know offhand what year, which, what year that was? I forget. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. It was, it came out in 1985 and the director is Danny Steinman. Not that that matters so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's interesting because in the late 80s, you start to get into that, like, people do start doing, it becomes yeah. about the kills, and it's about, mm -hmm. you know, like, how can we make this kind of funny? It's the same with, yeah. um, although I do love, and unfortunately, this isn't on my list, so spoiler, um, but A Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, the third one. Uh -huh. Um, you know, that's where you start getting into Freddy as we know him later with, you know, like, yeah. welcome to primetime, bitch. You know, and he like shoves <laughs> her head through a TV, you know, uh -huh. it, it gets really silly. And yeah, so uh -huh. it is kind of par for the course at that point. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I, I've seen all of them. I don't, most of them blur together. I mean, I need to rewatch them. And 
Fortunately, my wife is really into ultra gory movies. Uh, if nice. you ever met her, you'd never know. She's so bubbly. She's so sweet. She's the greatest. And then yeah. let's watch people be brutally murdered and tortured. That's her thing. It's very strange. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's an awesome pick. Uh, number 13, Friday the 13th, part five. That's awesome. There we go. Uh, my number 13 might be a little less exciting, I guess, for some people. Um, but I'm going to justify this. I don't think it needs justified, but I'm going to say it that way. My number 13 is uh, James Wan's 2013 movie, The Conjuring. And um, his 2013 horror outing follows two paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren, as they work to help a family terrorized by a dark presence in their farmhouse. Forced to confront a powerful entity, the Warrens find, uh, find themselves caught in the most terrifying case of their lives. The Conjuring uses classic horror tropes and uh, wraps them up in a brand new packaging. It builds on them beautifully up to the gory and well-earned R-rated finale. At a budget of $20 million, box office kills it. I mean, this is the first success on my uh, list. It's $319 million it makes. Is the movie perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, but uh, I do love, I remember being in the theater seeing this. And uh, I remember being rated R, and the whole time, all the way up to to its kind of chilling basement finale, I'm like, this could be a PG-13 movie. Like, what's happening? There's no sex, there's no cussing, there's no, you know, like nothing crazy's happening until they go to the basement when the mom's possessed. And then, you know, there's like blood and <laughs> like, I mean, it just gets pretty wild and I, and I you know I've never ever been a fan uh, of uh, I say never ever I, I haven't really been much of a fan of James Wan's work at large you know I don't really care for the Fast and the Furious movies um, the first Saw I think is the best of them personally uh, but I don't like any of them really um, I don't know he did uh, Death Sentence which has some pretty cool moments there's actually and I wish we could do uh, like we might do some top list of just scenes because there are a lot of movies I don't yes. like, but Death Sentence has one of my favorite long takes. I mean, it's nice. like they're moving. Th I don't know if you've seen that movie, but they move through this parking garage and it's incredible. And so I can see James Wan's uh, vision. I can see his style, but you know, the original Annabelle doll, for example, is a Raggedy Ann doll. Or Raggedy yeah. Andy is one of the two, but it's like just a very basic looking doll. And in the movie, of course, it's the most horrifying, stereotypical, like scary doll you could ever find, right? And that kind of sums up James Wan in a nutshell to me. Everything almost like it might be the best, but it's of the kind of overplayed stereotype usually. And what I love about The Conjuring is I can tell, as he said before, I believe as well, that it's kind of a passion project. It's like, let's go back to how they used to make horror films. Yes, there's CG in it, but he tried to do it more sparingly. A lot of wire work where he's pulling people around with wires and uh, you can watch like the behind the scenes stuff and it's really cool. A lot of like really tricky little horror uh, uh, gimmicks, I guess, to use the recipe yeah. phrase, uh, you know, where, um, you know, they have the clapping game. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, uh, the mom will call out something and then everyone has to clap so she can find them. What a great... Like, they set that up, and then later when they do it for, like, a horror effect, I mean, what a great game yeah. to use for that, right? Um, and so, uh, I don't know. I, I'm a, a huge fan of The Conjuring. This is, like, a legitimate in my top 15. It wouldn't be in my top 10. Clearly, it's not. 
if I did a top 20, you know, reanimator might be in here somewhere above it. <laughs> you know, like, like there might yeah. be a few that would push it down a bit, but I think it'd be in my top 20 regardless. I, I, I proudly stand by the conjuring. I love again, practical effects. And I love that Juan took that, uh, in a time of CG, he tried to do more of it. I love, um, that, uh, you know, although it gets really kind of cheesy at the end, um, it earns it for me. I'm totally cool. You know, like, because yeah. I feel like a lot of his other movies, too, including like, you know, I remember seeing Saw um, and I loved it when I first saw because I was right into movies. So I hadn't seen movies like that before. And yeah. uh, I just remember thinking like later when I rewatched it, how much it felt like I was watching some like made for MTV horror movie with like yes. random like music videos cut in because a lot of his edits and the coloring and stuff looks like a music video to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, but this movie really gets away from that, and and one could say Insidious does the same thing, um, and I love the first third of that movie, Insidious, because it's much like The Conjuring, and then you yeah. have that weird Ghostbusters thing in the middle, <laughs> where they're doing like a weird seance, and I'm super <laughs> into that as well. Just it feels like a different movie, you know. It it feels like three movies Insidious does, but The Conjuring I think is cool. The last thing I'll say about this is Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, Years ago, I used to watch Paranormal State, which was uh, a TV show about Mm -hmm. uh, uh, paranormal investigators. And Lorraine Warren would be one of the mediums that would go in, the real Lorraine Warren. So going into this movie, I was familiar with Lorraine, and she's the sweetest old lady, the most awesome person. Like, I love her (laughs) so much. So it also Mm -hmm. probably helps that I know their story already. And so seeing this movie and knowing how awesome these people are, I do actually love Ed and Lorraine Warren's relationship in it. Um, I don't know. I just really love this movie. And yeah, that's my number 13, The Conjuring. Uh, So Joe, number 12. Uh We're getting there. Go for it, man. Number 12. Yeah, number 12 um, is, um, yeah, a longtime favorite. Again, not, not as traditionally scary but it's it's as much a comedy as anything. It's a horror comedy from 1982, directed by George A. Romero. It's Creep Show. Nice. And so, Creep Show number one is part of a tradition with me and and my children. Every year on Father's Day, we watch the the first segment of this film, which is called Happy Father's Day. Uh, so, Creep Show, if you're not familiar with it, is an anthology. Uh, it's it's a series, I believe, of five stories, four or five stories, and each one is is completely self-contained. Each one was written by Stephen King, and then the film overall was directed by George Romero. So there is that kind of that element. It was kind of a big deal at the time that these two kind of horror titans were in, you know, kind of both in their heyday, more or less. Yeah, uh, teaming up to to make this. Um, Creepshow two actually is, has its own merits and I love that movie on its own. It's, it's not nearly as good as the first creep show, but, um, you know, there's, you know, the, the segments include, like I said, happy father's day, which is, um, about a rich family, um, and the, the patriarch of that family who is murdered by his daughter, who then comes back to exact revenge and get his father's day cake. Um, he, <laughs> so there's that one. Uh, there's one where Stephen King plays a, kind of a, a, a hayseed backwater kind of guy who encounters a meteor that um, causes kind of a strange fungus to start growing on him. There's one, um, actually one segment actually stars a friend of mine, someone who I could call a friend. 
um, a, a woman by the name of Galen Ross, who stars with um, uh, in, in her segment with Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen uh, about two lovers who um, one of whose one of whom's husband discovers them and decides to play a, a deadly prank on them that kind of comes back to bite him. Um, that that's a really fun segment. Uh, then there's one about yeah. So there there are five. There's a one called the crate about a monster who lives inside of a, a big wooden box underneath a staircase. And then one about a, a professor who is afraid of cockroaches, and of course the the cockroaches come back to haunt him. So it's <laughs> it's fun. There's there's a lot of people who were luminaries for their times. You know, I mentioned Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen, Ed Harris is in it. A young Ed Harris, who does a very embarrassing kind of quasi disco dance in the in his segment. Um, Adrian Barbeau and Hal Holbrook are both in it. Um, Stephen King, like I said, plays in in the in one segment. And it's it's just a lot of fun. Each segment is memorable on its own. Uh, everybody kind of has their fa- you know every everybody who's a fan of this movie has their own favorite segment, but each one of them is memorable and, and worth seeing. And it's it's just a lot of fun. It's actually based. It's supposed to be based on like a comic book style. So it's actually there's buffered between each of these. There's a uh, a sequence. Actually, Tom Atkins also is in it. In that, in those sequences, as uh, a, there's a little boy who has the comp, the Creepshow comic books, and his dad, you know, calls them crap and trash and throws them in the, you know, in the trash can, and and so there, there's that little, you know, subplot in the middle. So it, it's just a fun, it's just a fun movie. The scares are relatively light. It's one that I would say is relatively safe for kids. Uh, you know, it, it's it's more it's more fun scares and lightheartedness and, and goofiness than anything. But, um, but it's something I love and I love watching it with my kids. So, so I'm, I'm throwing it at number 12. Yeah. That, you know, I'm a little embarrassed because that is such a big title and it's such a beloved movie now. Uh, not that it wasn't mm-hmm. then, but I mean, I feel like a lot of people still kind of praise it for the exact reasons you are, that it's a fun movie. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen it from beginning to end. I've seen Stephen King's segment and that's it. Uh- uh, and, yeah. and it's a movie that if you were to see in my phone on my notes, I have horror movies and that is near the top of stuff that I want to tackle, uh, with my yeah. wife. Cause as soon as we talked about this being horror month, I made a list and creep show is something I've always wanted to see, but it's never been the movie I've chosen to watch myself. You know what I mean? Right. I have mm-hmm. to get into it. I think it's a great choice. That is number 12 for Joe creep show. Uh, my number 12, is uh, the 1986 Cronenberg movie, The Fly. Um, and uh, in, in an article on RogerEbert.com by Gerardo Valero, he says, and I, I love his thing, so bear with me here. The Fly deals with Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, an eccentric inventor who meets reporter Veronica Quave, played by Gina Davis, at a science convention and somewhat unwillingly spills the beans about his latest creation, one that will change the world as we know it. The contraption in question is the teleportation system for inanimate objects, which is basically the same concept used for getting characters on and off the Starship Enterprise in Star Trek. With Veronica alongside him to document his progress, Seth is able to take the next step, giving his invention the ability to transport live beings. After a failed attempt, and that's putting it mildly, but after a failed attempt with a baboon uh, that should have given him some pause, Seth unwisely decides to rush testing the system with himself as the passenger, unaware that a seemingly innocent housefly has hitched a ride alongside him. 
After the initial apparent success, an oblivious Seth will find himself gaining incredible agility and strength, but will progressively become a mean, selfish, stench-filled, and tragic individual, illustrating in the process the nature of those insects in much higher detail than we would ever want to learn. By film's end, we'll end up seeing these creatures in a very different light, and Seth will not be able to regret enough the fact that he did not provide his device with an undue command. Har har. Uh, and, and what I love about that is uh, uh, this is a body horror movie, and I think this is probably, in my view, the quintessential body movie. I think I would go as far as to say if anyone ever wanted to see the archetype of what body horror is, the exemplar, it is The Fly. I can't think of a better movie. I mean, there are a lot of really great ones, and Cronenberg has a whole slew of them. However, The Fly really digs in to the the idea of us watching someone deal with something that they cannot control within their own body. And so the, the movie had a budget of $10 million, give or take. There's some dispute there, but uh, within $5 million. And uh, the uh, box office made sixty million, so another another one, you know, made a little money back. I think it's since become a really uh, uh, just a gem. You know, uh, the practical effects. Back to my love for those. The makeup is outrageously good in this movie, even by today's standard. I understand that. Uh, you know, whenever he's in like a full body suit, you can kind of tell that, especially when he bends his arms. You can see the folds. Uh, but the makeup is outrageously good. It was so good uh, for that year that it won Academy Award for Best Makeup. And though I don't put a lot of stock in the Academy Awards, I'm proud of it for winning uh, for winning that. Uh, and people loved this at the time. It was the top-grossing movie for two weeks. And uh, back to uh, Dead Alive and From Beyond, this movie is gory as shit, dude. <laughs> and, yes. and by gory, yes. I don't so much mean in violence. I mean in just gross goo. Uh, my favorite one, just to keep this short, because we could both probably talk about the fly. I can tell by how you're responding to it that we both <laughs> love this movie. Um, but I think uh, my the thing that watching the whole movie, it's gross. But the thing that made me almost cover my eyes uh, is when he throws up on the guy's hand, like the mm-hmm. the uh, the juices that are supposed to like deteriorate so he can eat that. I mean, can you think, is there just a better movie? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so disgusting and so good. I don't want to talk too long because, like I said, I mean, I really could dig into the fly. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. it's my favorite. Uh, I mean, Cronenberg's done a lot. He's gotten away from horror, and he's done uh, a whole variety of different movies. I mean, Videodrome is really excellent. Um, you know, he did, like I said, a bunch of other body horror movies, but... You know, I don't think that there is a movie I like more than Cronen- uh, that Cronenberg did than The Fly on a personal level. Uh, I think it's just my favorite of his. Um, so, yeah, that's my number 12. It's uh, The Fly. That. Yeah, I can't argue that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. So, Joe, we're down to our last movie for this episode. Uh, why don't you uh-huh. give us your number 11? Yeah, so so it's funny. Number 11, you, you mentioned a, a couple of uh, choices ago for me. Um, uh, again, Somewhat a celebration of a franchise, but also this particular film marked the next level for this franchise, and that is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Nice. Uh, from, from 1987, Chuck Russell directed it, um, who would go on, oddly, to direct The Scorpion King, of all things, <laughs> uh, years later. 
I, I always thought that was bizarre, but, um, but yeah, so yeah, uh, nightmare three is, it, it's a shift it. Number one, it brings back the heroine from the first film, uh, you know, Nancy Thompson, mm-hmm. and she is the, she's the adult now she's no longer the teenager. And, and she finds, you know, she, she finds employment at a, again, a home for troubled youth. And she meets kind of a motley crew of, of people who are, who are in this hospital and her job is to counsel them. And they all, oddly enough, are beginning to have that same dream about the mysterious guy with razors on his hands. And th- this is the movie where the teenagers fight back. And, uh, you know, as you said, it's, it's called Dream Warriors and has an awesome title song from, from the band Dokken. Absolutely. And yeah, and the, the video for that was the greatest thing. But in some ways it was great. And, you know, I mean, you can argue the the inverse of that, too, is that it turned Freddie from this horrific, you know, being into essentially the hero of the franchise, you know, as a wisecracking, you know, he's the wisecracking villain. But um, but, you know, just on its own, it's terrific. It, you know, the, the teenagers, uh, Nancy teaches the teenagers to. Um, harness their own powers in the dream world so that they can fight back. There's a couple of awesome sequences where Freddy manifests himself as like a giant worm kind of thing and tries to eat um, uh, the uh, one of the other teens played by Patricia Arquette. And I believe that's her first role. Um, She's so, young. You know, the, yeah. You know, yeah uh, Bradley Gregg is in it. Who's been in uh, a lot of other kind of horror movies of that, of that um, era. Um and there's a couple of nice surprises. Uh, John Saxon comes back for a few scenes. Craig Wasson, who was, I don't want to call him necessarily a serious actor. He was in movies like body double. I think he, so he was, he was kind of, he was known. He was in kind of a known commodity. Hey, I like um, body double. You, you stay away from, body. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey I, I'm a fan too, you know, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of the, it's a step up in terms of imagination. It's not just, you know, here's just a fresh group of teenagers for Freddy to kill. They, you know, as I said, they fight back and they, they have their own video game type powers and, and are able to, uh, to provide some resistance. And, and it, it definitely is a kind of a a step up uh, for the franchise. And, you know, of course you can argue as, as it goes along the franchise putters out, you know, to varying degrees, but um, it's still, it's a highly entertaining movie and um and also has one terrific um dream sequence with um with the mute the kind of the, the mute character joey um with uh, the the sexy nurse who comes in and it, it's kind of a sex dream for a while and then freddie kind of horns in on it and it <laughs> <laughs> so it it's a it's it's just it's a lot of fun um it, it, to me, it's a toss-up between this one and, and the original as to which is the the actual best of the series. But um, they're 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 both very good in, in very different ways. Yeah, I, you know, I I do want to step in on that because I have seen this one. And yeah. um, uh, first off, when Freddy is the giant worm thing again, excellent practical effects. Reminds me of the yeah. same type of effects from From Beyond or something uh-huh. like that. I love love that. Um, but but yeah. I think three is for the franchise in some ways, uh, just as important as the first, because mm-hmm. the first one established it. And I think most people, and I, I hate to use that term cause I could be wrong. I think most people would say that's probably the best, but mm-hmm. three, um, actually kickstarts 
as you said, Freddy as like the hero almost, right? And I think that is an incredibly important pivot from what it had been the prior two. Um, and then, you know, the other one that people might throw in is New Nightmare. That was a huge, uh, like the return of Wes Craven and him doing mm-hmm. some of the things he would later do in Scream, where he's kind of playing off of this kind of meta idea. And uh, mm-hmm. he's just very good at that. But but I three, I I can't back you up on that. Ditto. It is so <laughs> entertaining. You know, yeah. I, it might be like the most entertaining. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I really adore the other two I mentioned, but but three is fantastic. And with a name like Dream Warriors, I mean, come on, you got to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your number, your number 11 is Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Uh, mine, uh, to wrap this up here, my number 11 is Wreck from 2007, a Spanish um, found footage movie. Uh, I'm going to butcher these names. I, I tried to even look them up. I really try to say names right. As a comm person, when I would teach yeah. classes, my goal was to know how to say people's names. These are, I can't do it. But I think it's uh, Balaguerra. I don't know. I'm not going to say it right. And Plaza. Anyways, the filmmakers created an excellent found footage horror movie following a TV reporter and cameraman uh, doing a story on local firefighters. They follow these emergency workers into a dark apartment building and are quickly locked inside by law enforcement after a series of strange events leads officials to believe there is something contagious in there. The budget is $2 million, and it made $32 million, and it has spawned like up to, I think there are three sequels or something. I think there's a total of four. There might even be more now. Um, Before I get into this, because I'm actually going to finish this with kind of a conversation a bit real quick, Joe. Uh, Have you seen Wreck? I have, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I I absolutely agree with you too. It is is terrific. And it is one that I think think hardcore horror fans know it and appreciate it, but the wider audiences, a lot of them have not seen it. There was actually a remake, uh, an American remake called Quarantine, which um, I don't even remember if I've seen it. But uh, but yeah, just the the original is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And let me say this on my you can't see them, uh, but you might be able to see them now. I have shelves back there and they're full of Blu-rays. I have a whole collection in that collection is Quarantine. You know why? Oh, because I think that movie's badass and everyone can go (laughs) suck a fart out of my butt because quarantine is almost a shot for shot of wreck. Are the performances as good? No. You know, like um, I mean, but uh, Dexter's sister, I forget her name, but in the show Uh, Dexter, his sister Carpenter. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I had Jennifer Lawrence in my head. I couldn't get it out. But uh, Jennifer (laughs) Carpenter, I think she does an awesome job in quarantine. She's the she's Uh the lead. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's not as good as Wreck, of course. But if you don't have access to Wreck, I would encourage you to see Quarantine. I I saw Quarantine and it really stressed me the fuck out. I just I like I was stressed yeah. out. Now at the time, I was married to my daughter's mom, um, and she had a blood clot. We were in the hospital, and I wanted to watch another horror movie, so I watched Wreck. And the yeah. next day, when I woke up, I was stiff because I was so tense the entire time <laughs> watching Wreck. Um, I mean, yeah. it is close quarters, like zombie infection zombie where they're fast, you know, like 28 days yeah. later style. So they're grabbing. It takes place in a in a, an apartment building that is essentially a uh, flight of stairs with apartments off shooting the stair landings. So yeah. it's fast zombies chasing people up narrow stairways. You know, they go into different rooms and lock themselves in and have to figure out how to get out. I mean, it is I I think this is criminally underrated on a Mm -hmm. larger level 
Um, yeah. And I, I, man, I can't praise this movie enough. And so this is where it gets into the conversation just briefly because we are like way over time and I love it. I'm going to totally <laughs> justify it as our first episode. But here's the thing. Found footage movies I don't typically like. And, I, and yeah. I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, I found these really cool rules. There's a website called Birth Movies Death. I've never heard of it until I found these rules. Um, yeah. But on there, they, I pretty much agreed with these. And I kind of gave my own uh, examples after it. But I took the five main points. The first found footage rule is be relatable. And by that, I mean the camera is the first person perspective of the viewer. So give them something that they can grab onto. You know, the Blair Witch Project starts uh, with a team doing a documentary, right? We can at least understand that. We understand where we're starting. It's something that we can kind of grasp onto. And in the case of Wreck, just to praise it some more, it's a news crew. So, you know, we can totally get what they're doing. It feels Mm -hmm. very real. There are no awkward edits or cuts. I mean, it like the camera shuts off when there's an edit, you know? Uh, But the second point is establish a reason to film. And I think that's another thing, like, because I I can't stand it when I'm watching a movie and I exclaim, why are they filming this? You know, because it just doesn't make sense why you would have cameras right now. Or sometimes they might have multiple cameras and they're like, cut. It's like, how is this found? Like, if you just found this, it wouldn't be edited. Like, what the fuck? So anyways, yeah. like with Wreck, again, it's a news crew. And when they get into this building and they're basically held against their will inside, they start using the camera. What was used at the beginning to film a piece, mm-hmm. a news piece, is now turned into documenting something for news. Then yeah. is turned into documenting something for an injustice because they are being treated unfairly. Um, and yes. they're being uh, murdered, you know, because mm-hmm. they try to escape and they're being assat- basically executed. Um, yeah. And so they're documenting it. It makes complete sense that you would be filming this. And then at the mm-hmm. end, it makes even another shift. I love that there are multiple reasons to film here. The last one, they're in a completely pitch dark room where they were chased by like these weird zombie things in there. And it's oh. pitch black. So they use the camera, the night vision on it. Yeah, That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it's. I think this is really great. So first, be relatable. Second, establish a reason to film. Third, cut to the chase. Too many of these movies right. just take way too long. And and the person that wrote this, you know, said boring the audience for forty minutes is not building suspense. And I just love that because it's so true. Uh, it's probably mm-hmm. often precisely uh, why I get bored with them because I feel like I have a great attention span. I don't mean to toot my own horn. I'm totally yeah. like, I, if I can watch an Antonioni movie, we're good. Okay. Like I can <laughs> right. do this, but a lot of times these are boring <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, but cut to the chase. The fourth and fifth one are really important to me. These are the, the, the catches here. The fourth one is embrace the limitations of the style. Meaning, yes. Most movies have moments where you can use exposition. You, you know, a character can talk to another character, but really what they're doing is telling you, the viewer, something about the plot or something to move yeah. it forward. But in these, it's found footage. You would, I wouldn't just talk to you, Joe, about, right. you know, how much I love Captain Crunch. Like, why would we talk about that unless we were talking about cereal, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so, you know, it doesn't really leave room for exposition. So embrace it. Embrace these limitations and a lot of these movies like Wreck, you have no idea why these people are turning into zombies. It's similar to rabies. It's like super rabies, maybe. But you don't understand why. There's no explanation of how. Now, that kind of comes right. in Wreck 2, which is disappointing, but I still really like that movie. Um, uh-huh. But, like, I don't need the explanation. It's already scary. Part of the fear is the fact that you're in 
this crazy shit and you have no idea what's happening. You're living alongside these characters. And that is really important to me. And it's a place that a lot of these movies by the end uh, ruin. And the, the final spot ties into that. It's commit to the style. So once you've embraced the limitations of it, now just commit to it. Because what happens is in the third act, and I'm sure you'll you'll understand what I'm getting at here, Joe. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times, take a movie like Chronicle, which wasn't necessarily a horror movie, but it was like a found footage superhero thing. By the end, yeah. you know, he has like 14 cameras hitting him because he's like <laughs> holding these phones and it's like editing. And it's like, who edited this together for us to watch? Now, I, I feel like I'm being a purist and a stickler here, but mm-hmm. I don't. Why am I watching this if it's not authentic? I'd rather right. you just do the thing. I, it's not entertaining for me. And, and I feel like someone could say that. They could say, dude, just sit back and enjoy it. It's entertaining. What you're right. offering me isn't. I want that level of, of attention to detail. Because mm-hmm. the most important thing is stick to the suspension of disbelief. Yes. And you need all five of those things to help me suspend my disbelief to believe this is a real found footage thing. Because if it's not, it's just some shitty movie that looks bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in exactly this, right. like, that's what I want. And and I'm going to end on a quote, and then I'll let you comment if you want. Sure, sure. Uh, but to quote Alan Alda in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, he talks about comedy, and he says, if it bends, it's funny. But if it breaks, not funny, right? Um, I think that about suspension of disbelief and horror, you know? If it bends your suspension of disbelief, it's okay. That's good. You know, you can push us a yeah. bit. But if it breaks... Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's done. Yeah. yeah. How do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, well, uh, and I, I largely agree with all those. Um, you know, for me, the, you know, the, the modern example, of course, you mentioned the Blair Witch Project. But before that, even, there, were, there was Cannibal Holocaust, yep. which, which actually the, the director of that film actually got arrested in, I believe, in Italy because they thought that he actually murdered people making that film. Yeah. And, and, and he got, I think he also got brought up on obscenity charges. Like after they found out he didn't like, you know, they had the actors who were, you know, the characters in the, the, you know, in the film that appeared in court, then they tried to get him on obscenity charges and things like that because that film was so believable at the time by today, not necessarily, but, um, but the, you know, the thing that, that always kind of, catches me in a found footage film is when they use music yeah it's when there's there's music cues and 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 i think people uh, they i'm going to assume the people from that article were were largely picking on the um the paranormal activity franchise which which i which i enjoy but does break a lot of those rules they have the multiple angles and there's that at, at times it's just a very contrived reason why the person why the person who's filming wants to continue filming and yes. you know and it turns into and then it turns into those scenes where they're just like just turn the camera off just turn it off and the guy's like no i don't want to it, you know yeah. and you're like you're seriously close to being murdered here maybe you want to just stop filming for a minute yeah. maybe just put the camera down and not even worry about the damn thing but yeah but the you know the the blair witch project did it in that more realistic way to, to the extent that there are people within the last couple of years who still don't know if that was real or not. Yeah. And you know, I, I still within the last four or five years, I, I had someone try to tell me that that was a real, that was real footage that was found. And the people who, you know, played those were never found. 
And I was like, no, no, they were actors. And they're like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, but they, they kind of, they followed all those rules and, and they did not use music. There was not that, you know, there's not that kind of underlying dread that comes through which paranormal activity is, is the one thing that really annoyed me about those movies is that they did that. They just kind of slipped it in and you're not supposed to even notice it. Um, but I, I think a necessary consequence of that is that you've got to do other things to keep, you know, keep the attention. So it's got to be short. It's hard to keep someone's attention without using those artificial cues, especially, you know, more American audiences who are used to, you know, even subliminally, we're just trained to have those kind of cues. So to not have them is, you know, you, you got to be careful and, you know, and, and you got to do that. And, and the original, the, you know, the Blair Witch Project, I think was only like 70 minutes or something. It was yeah. pretty short. So it's, it's really important. It's really, it's really harder than you think to pull off. It's, it's something a lot of people try because you can do it on a really low budget, but it's really tough to pull off. And, you know, it, it you almost have to kind of catch lightning in a bottle to pull it off. And, and Rex oh, yeah. certainly does. Yeah, certainly yeah. does on so many levels. I'm so glad we agree on that. Um, <laughs> with this being our first episode, uh, my computer's being looking weird and it's making me panic. So we're going to end this. <laughs> uh, we're going to end this now because I'm too afraid of losing footage here. Um, but Joe, thank you so much. Uh, Joe's going to be back with us for the next two episodes where we start to break down now our top 10 of this list, where we will do our 10 through six on the next episode and our five and up to our number one on the following. And um, yeah, Joe, thank you so much uh, for hanging with us today. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is terrific. I think this is going to be a great format and, and uh, you know, Hey, if you're listening uh, and, and you enjoy it, I guess if you don't enjoy it, tell us, right? We, you know, we, we want to know that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. You can go to Instagram, medium cool pod. You can at medium cool pod on Twitter, uh, medium cool pod at gmail.com. You can hit us up all the feedback. We're totally into it. And we're also going to be asking for it sometimes. So yeah. that's a great point. Yeah. 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 All right. If, if we suck, tell us how we suck. You know? Yeah. Especially Joe. We're, we're, yeah. We're, especially <laughs> me. <'cause>, you know. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you. All right, thanks. Wow, I had such a great time talking to Joe. I'm pretty sure that I've made a lifelong friend at this point. Uh, he's really great, and, and it was a really fun time that, uh, talking about all those things. And, you know, uh, we went a little longer than we had anticipated, but I'm really glad that you guys stuck with us. Our 11 through 15 is complete, it's revealed. Those are our movies so far. We'll be revealing our 1 through 10 eventually across the next two episodes. Speaking of which, we had a really awesome opportunity to speak with the filmmakers behind the new documentary dropping today. Go check it out today called Holding These Moments. It's a, uh, a documentary about the legendary hardcore band Bane. And don't think you have to be into hardcore to like this. I mean, I really think that this is just a universally effective documentary. So please go check that out. It's on iTunes. It's on Amazon. It's on, you know, uh, or not. I, yeah, iTunes. Yeah. And uh, Apple TVs, all the things. Just go Google it and find it. Um, but even more importantly, right now, right now on, on our podcast, you know, list of episodes, there's a bonus content. 
And we are um, talking to the filmmakers next week on Tuesday when we drop our main content. But the bonus content is with the band from the documentary, Bane. So go listen to that right now. Go check it out. Um, It's so fun. We talk about the band and we talk about the music, but we also talk about movies. And that is awesome. Anyways, go check that out. Until next time, everybody, thank you for tuning in to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. Again, make sure that you subscribe, you know, uh, wherever you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, please subscribe or follow us and uh, make sure you hit us up on social media. We're going to have a lot of fun ways of interacting with you there. But until next time, good night, good luck, and we love you.